You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 529. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at former APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 12th of July, 2022. In today's episode, a FedEx 757 lands on the wrong runway. American Airlines flight radios, mayday, 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 we've got multiple failures. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, the Great Two listed centrifuge. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 529 is ready to push back. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City! Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. In the morning, an aviation podcast covering the the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA, and joining me today from his studio... Hartford, Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF, nope, RAAF, ah, RAAF, something to do with the Australian Royal Air Force, fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340, captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways, this is Captain Nick. Uh, hello, Jeff. It's great to see that you are having the same problem that I often do. Yeah, and the Australian Royal Air Force will undoubtedly be writing to us soon. I hope so, because I need somebody to write to me. <laughs> and uh, also joining us, a place to stand, a place to grow, from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer-director, it's Liz Piper. Here I am. Hi, everybody. Yay. All right. And we'll have Dr. Steph joining us in progress. In the meantime. See you later, guys. All right. Bye. Stand by for news. All right, let's start with uh, this one. This is, uh, when I read through this, I... Uh, I don't know what to think. Uh, this happened on the uh, 23rd of May of this year. Uh, a serious, it's a preliminary report uh, from uh, published by the uh, Bureau de Dakadatotomantatom, uh, the BEA. Uh, let's see if I'm <laughs> glad you thought that was funny. Let's, uh, let's see if I can actually find uh, the BEA uh, audio um thing and uh, should have had that ready and I don't but uh, nah I can't find it anyway um, 
So the uh, Bureau of something or other uh, in France that investigates these sort of things. Uh, this was a serious incident on the Airbus A320 registered nine hotel Echo Mike uniform. Again, on May uh, 23rd, 2022, on approach to Paris, Paris, Charles de Gaulle Airport. And uh, let's see the history of the flight. Uh, the crew of the Airbus A320 performing scheduled flight uh, 4311 took off on 23 May around 9.30 in the morning from Stockholm, Orlanda Airport in Sweden, bound for Paris, Charles de Gaulle. The captain was the pilot flying. The co-pilot was the pilot monitoring. Before descent, the flight crew prepared for an RNP approach with LNAV slash VNAV minima to uh, Charles de Gaulle's runway 27 right. The meteorological conditions indicated in the ATIS uh, Quebec used by the flight crew when preparing the approach were the following. Transition level 7-0, wind 280 at 10 knots, visibility 10 kilometers, broken clouds at 1,500 feet, few cumulonimbus at 5,000, temperature 19 degrees, dew point 14, QNH 1001. And that last thing I said is very important. The crew stated it's very important. The crew stated that during all the approach, they remained in clouds without visual references. They experienced moderate turbulence and flew through heavy rain using the wipers at high speed. All right, and then it goes on. First approach at uh, 11.32.24 on approach to, and I guess that's in um, probably uh, Zulu time, on approach to Charles de Gaulle, uh, the intermittent, uh, the intermediate controller well, intermittent might be true as well, uh, instructed the flight crew to descend to 6,000 feet with an incorrect QNH 1011 instead of 1001, valid at the time. Uh, here's the quote, red nose 4311, descend, descend 6,000 feet 1011. The pilot monitoring red back with this QNH, 6,000 feet 1011, 1011. One one, red nose four three one one. I guess maybe even right at that moment, the co-pilot may have been a little confused. Uh, at eleven thirty-four, she instructed the crew, the controller, to descend to five thousand feet, repeating the incorrect QNH. Red nose forty-three eleven, descend five thousand feet one zero one one, cleared full RNP two seven right. The pilot monitoring read back the information, descend 5,000 feet, QNH 1011, cleared full RNP approach 27 right, red nose 4311. Is this like a like a Christmas airline, red, like Rudolph, red nose? No, hmm. I'm guessing, uh, what is it, Norwegian. a Norwegian outfit? Norwegian with uh, the red. Uh, oh. got a, the front of the airplane is, is painted oh. red. Why did I think that this was a Maltese airplane or airline? I don't know. Perhaps it is, but I, I, I'm just thinking of the uh, Norwegian airline. Ah, oh, I see. Uh, the low-cost carrier. I don't know if they're still around. Maybe. Airhub Airlines Maltese operator. Oh, whoa. Hey, what, whoa. what well, is that I hear? There's a voice in my uh, head. I was going to wait, but then you were struggling, so I figured I'd Well, help. we're always struggling here, Dr. <laughs> Steph. Uh, like right now, I'm struggling to get your little uh, ditty here. Uh, let's see. I was just going to say that and disappear until you can form. No, you're not. Me after you're, this, you got to uh, stay now. Oh, okay. You got to stay. Uh, darn From it. her lakeside studio in South. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper. We know her as Doctor Steph. 
Hey guys, sorry for being a little bit tardy, but glad oh. to see you both and uh, nice. glad to be here. And I've got a beer in hand, so all is well. And yeah, all is well with the world, right? <laughs> I think you really deserve that one, Steph. I need it right now, but that's <laughs> okay. a different story entirely. And let's, uh, it'll help things smooth things out for me for the show. I'll just say. Hey, you know, you got here earlier and sooner than I thought you would, so I'm I'm very pleased. <laughs> You know, um, oh, what is it? Uh, under it, promise, over deliver. Exactly. I try. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's Brilliant. my motto. Um, <laughs> I found in the smallest print yeah. uh, possible uh, Air Hub Airlines, a Maltese operator. Ah, okay. Isn't that what I just said? I it think is. it was very oh, similar. Okay. To but what you, you said it way <laughs> quick, and I could I can't understand way quick. You're talking too fast. Jeff. Okay. Tell your ears to hurry up. Okay. So there you go. Oh, that's why I thought that because right at the top there in that little data block uh, operator is AirHub Airlines, a Maltese operator. But I guess they're, uh, I'm sorry if you already said this, they are performing or the flight for uh, Norwegian or is it just, uh, so again, I go back to why are, why is their call sign red nose? I don't know. Okay. Well, that, that cool uh, then leave until you figure it out, and then you can come back. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, Stay bye. Here. No, no, no. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. Where was I here? Um, Airhub's call sign is Airhub. Um, oh. Definitely, it's Norwegian's call sign is Red. Yeah, so they were probably flying for them in yeah. some arrangement. Anyway. Uh, it's Norwegian, yeah. Get back to the story. I'm getting back oh, to the story, sorry, Liz. Quit yelling at me. <laughs> Hey, these are the important things, Liz. These are the people. These are the things that people want to know about. Exactly. That's why they want. If they wanted like accurate, timely, concise information, that they'd listen to all the other aviation podcasts <laughs> out there. This is what they're here for. This confusion. All right. Um, the uh, ITM at eleven thirty-five thirty-seven. What's the ITM? In the morning. Instructed an EasyJet flight crew to descend to 5,000 feet with the same incorrect QNH. Easy 75 Mike Alpha, direct Papa Golf 650, and descend 5,000 feet 1011. Cleared RNP approach 27 right. The EasyJet crew read back, giving the valid, the correct QNH, namely 1001, without asking for confirmation of the QNH value. Uh, they Responded direct to Papa Golf 650, Descent 5000, QNH 1001, Easy 75 Victor Alpha. This was not noticed by the controller. At 11.36, the uh, controller instructed an Air France crew in French to descend to 5,000 feet with the correct QNH. Hmm, I'm oh, wondering sure if it's, it's uh, some kind of a language thing, perhaps. Uh, I think mostly a dyslexic thing at the moment. Could be, yeah. The Air France crew yeah. read back with the correct QNH-1001. Okay, so why is this important? Important. Well, um, let's see. The flight crew stated that they conducted the altitude distance checks every mile during their approach, which led them to believe that they were on the descent profile. However, in such a situation where the altimeter setting is incorrect during an RNP approach with LNAV slash VNAV minima, Altitude distance checks do not detect that the flight path has deviated. Due to the incorrect QNH setting, the altitude value displayed on the aircraft instruments was around 280 feet above the real aircraft altitude. The flight crew were thus conducting an RNP approach with LNAV-VNAV minima around 280 feet below the published approach descent profile. That's Oops. not good. Yeah, can I make a point there, Jeff? Yes, please. 
Uh, and the and our old-fashioned approach is when we were doing, say, a VOR uh, or an NDB, and we were descending on a profile where we were checking our altitude against a distance from the beacon, uh, that's where those height checks were valid and important because it was basically checking your glide path to see whether you were above or below the correct height as you passed each mile on your approach. So we used to do that. Our MP approach, that is not a, as they said, it's not a valid way of confirming your altitude because you're doing it uh, against all the equipment in the aircraft that already knows your altitude. And if you've set the incorrect altimeter setting, there will be no difference to the altitude on your chart to the altitude on the instruments because you're not comparing it against an external uh, source. You're comparing it against the information that's already there internally within the aircraft. Very true. And we'll see why that is an, an important point here soon. Um, okay. First approach, the, um, they, there was a minimum safe altitude warning on final uh, a near controlled flight into terrain, go around at low height around one nautical mile before the runway without visual references and with runway approach lights off. Incorrect Q&H re read back by the crew during the go around, not noticed by the controller. The flight crew contacted the, loc localized, uh, the local north, the tower controller, who replied, Bonjour, Red Nose 4311. You are number one, wind 260, 12 knots, runway 27 right, cleared to land. The crew correctly read back the clearance. Um, shortly thereafter, and at an indicated altitude of about 1,392 feet, uh, with QNH 1011, the actual altitude, 1,123 feet, if they had the proper QNH set, uh, 837 feet uh, above the ground, uh, corresponding to the stabilization altitude for the crew, 1,000 feet above the aerodrome, and at 3.1 nautical miles from the runway threshold, the aircraft was configured for landing and at a speed of 130 knots, indicated airspeed and a vertical speed of negative uh, or 738 feet per minute down, which is all, you know, sounds normal to all of us um let's see uh the ground minimum safe altitude warning was triggered the aircraft at 11 41 32 the aircraft was at an indicated altitude of 891 feet uh, qnh 1011 or 617 feet actually uh 1.53 nautical miles from the runway threshold in other words they're they're way lower than they should be uh, the controller stated that the visibility and ceiling at the airport were sufficient not to implement LVP, which is a more uh, a lower minima uh, type of uh, and and uh, like a precision um, uh, RNAV approach. But that locally in the east of the airport, the visibility was poorer due to clouds and rainfall. The controllers in the tower could not see the aircraft on short final because of the bad weather. At 11.41.41, at 1.2 nautical miles from the runway threshold and with a vertical speed of 717 feet per minute uh, down, the aircraft passed the indicated altitude of 802 on 1011, which is 537 actually, which corresponded to the decision altitude for the crew. Uh, for the crew. The flight crew stated that arriving at that minima, they did not acquire visual references and consequently performed a go-around. At the same time, nine seconds after the minimum safe altitude warning was triggered, the localizer or the uh, local north uh, controller advised the crew, "Red Nose Four Three One One, I just had a ground proximity alert. Are you okay? Do you see the runway?" 
The crew stated that it, they did not hear this radio communication. During the message from the controller, a second minimum safe altitude warning was triggered. Uh, let's see. The airline policies add 50 feet to the published minima for RNP approach with LNAV, VNAV minima. That's exactly what we do at ACME. Therefore, according to the NAB blue chart used by the crew, their DA was 802 feet, which is 752 plus 50. At 1141.47 and during the controller's message at an indicated altitude of 735 feet, QNH1011, uh, which was actually 461 feet at the correct QNH, 52 feet above the ground, and at one nautical mile from the runway threshold. Okay. Wow. Let me That's say not, that again. That, one mile yeah. from the threshold, they're at 52 feet radio altitude. Uh, the autopilot was disengaged, and the captain pitched up. Three seconds later, at an indicated altitude of 679 QNH1011, 405 QNH1001, the minimum radio altimeter height was recorded at six feet above the ground. The aircraft <laughs> was 0.8 nautical miles from the runway threshold. At the same time, the captain moved the thrust levers forward into the toga detent. Okay, so it goes on. They did a second approach, and uh, the second approach, they they managed to Do break you want me to out. Put the graphic up there, Jeff. Yeah, you can go ahead and put the graphic up, Liz. Um, uh, here's a, a view of the um, altitude, distance to threshold, uh, where they should have been, and then their actual descent profile and. Uh, so the, the thing to take away here is that this seemingly uh, not a big deal, kind of 1011 as opposed to 1001, um, I don't know how we are not talking about this as a major aircraft disaster. Six feet above the ground. I mean, there must not have been any trees or anything Um Right there at that I was spot. thinking that even at like 52 feet, like some trees are yeah. pretty tall, you know? Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, they were damn lucky. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, some uh, guardian angels were uh, working mm-hmm. overtime uh, with this uh, flight crew and passengers on this flight. I don't know how they didn't crash the airplane uh, six feet above the ground. That's crazy. Um, so uh, Nick was talking about how I'm. Uh, Doing a RNAV approach um, is is different in the fa- in the fact that there's no ground based nav. Now I know there are certain RNP approaches that you use other ground based devices to kind of give it even higher accuracy. They're they're not in too many places in in the world, uh, but using RNAV approaches, um, everything is based on satellite information, nothing ground-based. And as opposed to an instrument landing system, which is the old technology, it turns out that this old technology, <laughs> to me, I, I always prefer doing even a localizer approach. If they're, if they're running RNAV approaches into an airport and uh, the localizer signal is available, I always ask my first officer to request for that approach because I trust that electronic signal that's on the ground that's sending out this radio frequency that is interacting with my instrumentation. And I know exactly what my track is. And more importantly, when you're doing a precision approach with an instrument landing system, ILS, 
is you know exactly where that glide slope is because it doesn't matter what altimeter setting you put in your uh, your altimeter. Um, it's going to show you. Now, you might be confused if you have the wrong <laughs> altimeter yeah, go, Wait a setting. minute. This because, is not where I'm supposed yeah. to be. Right. That, that's where an altitude check against, say, the final approach fix will uh, bring up an error. You'll go, hang on, I'm smack on the glide slope, but the final approach fix is, say, 1,100 feet, and we're at 900 feet. That's a 200-foot mm -hmm. error. Where's that come from? So you'd start questioning uh, your aircraft instrumentation, one of which the things you'd check would be your Q&H. Mm -hmm. uh, so to make sure that you have got that figure set correctly for the altimeter. Yeah. IHAL Boxes says RMPs can be backed up by... DME, which is dis distance measuring equipment. Also, uh, vertical speed displays can confirm your descent path. Yeah, there are ways to kind of help mitigate this thing, but uh, I just don't think there's anything better than... Now, with an instrument landing system, and one of the reasons why we do what Captain Nick was just saying, you know, the glide slope check, there's a glide slope check altitude uh, that we always check to make sure that we are on a good glide slope. What do you mean by a good glide slope? Well, uh, Miami Rick has talked about this in earlier episodes where it's possible because of the physical characteristics of these electronic beams that there's a there's another beam that's like a little bit higher and a little there's bit lower. False glide slopes. False glide slopes. So you have so to be, every three degrees or so. Yeah. So yeah. So that's one of the reasons why we're checking when we're going over that. Usually associated with a final approach fix, uh, we look at the altitude depicted on the approach chart, and if the altimeters agree that that's the altitude, then we know we can be assured that we're on a good glide path on or glide slope on the uh, instrument landing system. But, you know, the art, these RNAV approaches, you just, you just don't have that uh, assurance, uh, the same level of, an, of, of assurance, unless you're using one of those. And I forgot what they call them. I think Newark has uh, one of the systems where they have an RNAV RMP approach that actually uses some kind of a ground uh, based system as well to kind of give it super high accuracy. In fact, maybe even better accuracy than a than an ILS system. But um, anyway, yeah, that is amazing. Uh, when I read about this, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that was almost a major aircraft accident. And, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'd like to share now, just before. Uh, no, Nick, yep. you're going to say something, uh, but right. Uh, we'll see. I, I think it was um, last week on my last trip, my first leg, we were flying from Atlanta to um, uh, Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, it wasn't clear. It was, you know, there were some low ceilings. And we checked in, and our flight number was ACME. Thank you, IL. Uh, WAS, W-A-A-S, I think is the system that they can use in conjunction Wide with. Area Augmentation System. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, going into Asheville, our flight was 445, so ACME 445. We checked in. We already knew by looking at our, uh, you know, listening to ATIS and looking at the information we have, digital information on the in the cockpit, what the weather was and what the altimeter setting was. We also knew that we were at 445. However, the controller uh, read back, uh, hello, ACME 454, descend, maintain, 3,000 or whatever, 6,000 altimeter 3041. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, the altimeter is supposed to be 3014. So this controller not only 
dyslexied the, the, call, the, the call sign, but also the also altimeter the, setting and did it like several times. And finally, my first officer said, just want to be sure that you, are you talking to Acme 445? And they said, yes, Acme 44. And then from that point on, the controller got our call sign right. Um, Did and they still get the They gave the wrong right? altimeter setting to us, or they, the initial uh, check-in, and then to another, a Navy um, jet that was out there practicing a Poseidon, uh, uh, what do they call that, PS8 or P8, P8. Uh, doing an approach. And they were doing an RNAV approach, and uh, mm. they gave them the wrong altimeter setting. And they read back the wrong altimeter setting. Mm -hmm. And we got got on there and said, confirm altimeter 3014. And they said, yes, 3014. And I think in this case that the controller didn't even know. Didn't even know that they did it. That they said any of those things. I mean, and that that happens to all of us, right? Like we'll say something and and someone's like, did you mean to say that? And you're like, that's what I said. And you're like, you know, if you listen back Mm -hmm. to it, that's not what you said. But everyone has the potential to do that. That's just part of how our brains work. We mean to say one thing. And for some reason, there's a disconnect between our brains and our our mouths and something else comes out and your brain doesn't catch that there was an error there. So that's that's a common thing to happen. Um, You know, it's nice to have all kinds of backups and safeguards. Probably wouldn't work as well for the the airline type folks, but actually on my watch, I probably can't show it, but um, I have a little METAR widget that um, is set to always display the, you have to double check it, right? And make sure that it's displaying the correct METAR. Um, But especially helpful for the type of flying I do on the weekends, um, it pulls up um, the current weather. So it's got um, the winds, it's got the ceiling, and it's got the altimeter setting. So I always have that to kind of reference to, uh, it's just extra pieces of information in addition to what you can listen to on the radio and everything else. But, you know, if you hear something that doesn't match, you can kind of go, wait, that wasn't what it was, you know, 10 minutes mm-hmm. ago. Um, and, and just make sure. Uh, Neil says, would they have had the gear down at one mile? I'd, that's definitely yes. a uh, stabilized <laughs> flight uh, requirement. Uh, does the radio altimeter take that into account? Or did they risk hitting the ground with the gear if they were at six feet? Uh, I'm sure they had the gear down. And I think at some point, I don't think I read it out, but uh, I, well, no, I think I did. They said that they were fully configured um, at, at the appropriate places. Nick, uh, I interrupted you, so please okay. continue. Uh, I was just going to uh, add something to what you said. And yes, uh, when you uh, got the gear down sitting on the ground, the radio altimeter reads zero. So uh, it does take account of the fact that uh, it's it's like, 15 feet or 10 feet in the air. So, um, yeah, I was going to mention the minimum safe altitude warning system that the air traffic controller had. So not only has the air traffic controller given the wrong Q&H, um, the, she's also got this minimum safe altitude warning system which advises her uh, or uh, him, her, I'm not certain, um, when the aircraft uh, is in is likely to hit the ground during uh, an approach. It works within a certain distance of the airfield, I think about 60, 64 nautical miles, just to square around the airfield. Uh, and basically, uh, the the radar knows the minimum height within each sort of half-mile square all around it, the, the airfield in that area. And uh, if you're descending uh, at a rate that, that it doesn't like, that you're about to... Uh, collide with the ground, it will give a uh, MSOL warning. Uh, and the controller didn't follow the, her procedures. 
when uh, she said, check your terrain, because the actual call is supposed to be your call sign, terrain alert, check your altitude immediately, Q&H, blah, blah. And she should have said uh, 1011, of course. Uh, no. 1001. Which one was it? 1001. I don't know. 1001. It's all a bunch of binary stuff. I don't know. Close enough. If she'd made that mistake again, (laughs) of course, they would have looked, glanced at it and gone, no, we're fine. Uh, And flown Mm -hmm. into the ground. But uh, you're supposed to use, uh, it's an alert because there's a potential major problem when an aircraft's too low. Uh, And and that's because the aircraft's own. Proximity warning system, uh, the EGPWS, uh, which would normally alert you if you're getting too close to terrain with our very familiar whoop whoop pull up or whatever warning you're going to get for the type of uh, problem you're having. It has to be disabled on the final part of the approach because you're trying to land on the ground. And if you continually got warnings warning you that the ground's about to arrive, you'd be going, this is really upsetting because I'm I'm supposed to land on this runway. So for the fi- final part of the approach, it's disabled. So you weren't going to get any GPWS warnings. So this is the the sort of fail safe this uh, in your aircraft if you're descending fast enough though like at a higher rate of descent will it still be enabled well uh it, it, yeah the higher the rate mm-hmm. of descent the earlier it comes on i okay. believe yeah. but yeah. certainly it came on for this controller um so she should have given she t- said i've got a terrain alert but that's not what she's supposed to say she's supposed to give you uh, a, a quite a strict warning in you know in a specific terminology so you understand that you are in danger a mistake has been made um, instead of which she sort of asked them a question I've just got a terrain alert you all right and of course they're in cloud so how are they supposed to check they're all right uh, so you know uh, that wasn't good either no there were several mistakes made now I think that if you, when you read the preliminary report, you would think, oh, it was all the controller's fault. But I think you can't let the crew off the hook here. Oh, no, uh, no yeah. they should have had that information from Yeah, Edith and they and- should have recognized that they were giving them the wrong yeah. setting, and they should have queried and made sure. Are you sure 1011 or is it 1001? You know, let's... I know they, they sound very similar. I can understand how the error was made, but yes. That's a huge mistake, 280 feet worth of um, Yeah, altimeter. especially 280 feet low. Yeah. It it's, wasn't 280 feet high. Right, yeah. But what's the old saying? Um, you know, if it's something, something, if it's something low, watch out below or something like that. It's there, I shoot. I, I can't uh, the MDA of that approach was around 800 feet. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. 802. Well, it was 752 was plus yeah. 50. So it was 802. Yeah. There was their derived decision altitude. If they're doing the approaches like we do at ACME, um, a constant angle. It, basically, you create. Not a, not a dive and drive. It's a, yes, a non precision approach, but yeah. you kind of make it into a controlled, um, sort of like a quasi precision approach, but it's a much higher minimum descent altitude. So you add the 50 feet and kind of make it into a a decision altitude. And then you just treat it like you're flying a precision approach. And that 50 feet added to the minimum descent altitude kind of gives you that margin to uh, start performing the go around. Yeah, in the old days, and maybe people are still doing it, I I would assume, uh, you do the old dive and drive. 
you know, you, you hit the final approach fix, you know, time turn throttles, twist track talk. That's the old uh, Air Force mm-hmm. thing where you go, you descend, and you descend very quickly down to minimum descent altitude, and then you just level off, and you're really low to the ground, and you're just cruising along, waiting for your seat, see something outside that you need to see to continue the descent below the minimum descent altitude, or you go to the missed approach point and do your miss. But nowadays, I don't know how long ago, probably four or five years ago, maybe more, uh, they came up with this constant angle um, kind of approach method where you kind of make it a quasi precision approach where you're doing a consistent glide path, but it, you don't have that uh, precision guidance. Oh, thank you. I haul boxes from high to low. Watch out below. Yeah, there you go. Yep. So yeah. Damn lucky. They are uh, very, very lucky. Liz said anything to, uh, I'm, I hope, I hope we hear more about this uh, because this is like, Pretty I don't big know that deal. we will. I mean, this is yeah. kind of all the information, though, isn't it? It's yeah. You know, we know exactly what what happened, what transpired, why the the mistakes that were made were made. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we'll get the final report because sure. this is only the preliminary. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, the only other thing I I is question mark in my head, uh, and um, I'm not sure if this is a 320ism as opposed to the aircraft I flew, the 330 and the 340, but if we had the autopilot in, we never took it out to fly a go around. We just advanced the throttle straight mm. to Toga, and the autopilot yeah. flew the go around. So I'm not quite sure why the crew took it out. I, I believe for the in the A320 early days. Podcast. Yeah, in the early days, <laughs> the A, you might have had to do that in the A320, but I don't know if it's still a thing i wouldn't have thought so but um i you know i don't i'm not familiar with all the ins and outs of the 320 but that that was a question in my head as well I agree. why on earth would you take the autopilot out to fly the go around i think that uh, in most airplanes these days uh the the policy would be to continue to leave it connected and just let it fly the automatic go around yeah absolutely yeah i, I kind of scratched my head on that one as well you know, normally we don't ter- – in this situation, when you're IMC, Instrument Meteorological Conditions, in other words, you're not in the clear, you're in the cloud, you you don't disconnect until you, like, break out and you see the runway, and then you disconnect everything and you hand fly it to the runway. Or, you know, depending on the policy, the airplane, your your airline policy and that kind of thing. Um, mm. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know why, why the pilot flying, the uh, captain, did that. That was kind of odd. Yeah. I, I notice in the summing up at the end, they say, uh, whereas the MSOR system, when available, can be considered as one of the last barriers to avoid controlled flight into terrain. And whereas the MSOR phraseology was not used and the Q&H information was not repeated. So the report obviously recognizes that that was a major factor. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, they should have used the correct procedures when they got one of those warnings. Exactly. That would have maybe fixed everything, you know, from right off the bat. Wait a minute. Why yeah, are we getting a low like, altitude alert? Oh, wait a minute. We have the wrong Q&H. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A, a great one to learn from. Uh, yeah. And fantastic that we don't have to sift through the wreckage to find out what happened. No kidding. So, yeah. No kidding. Okay. Well... That is all the news that we have regarding people making mistakes. Oh, wait. No, that's not right. I was going to say, <laughs> slow news week. No. Because people never make mistakes. No. 
Oh, I haul boxes says, did the term vectored flight into terrain already exist? <laughs> I don't know if that exists yeah, I think or not. CFIT covers that yeah. still. So, yeah. Controller flight into, into terrain. Oh, pretty good. Yeah. Yes. All right. Uh, second item, item B, incident, uh, FedEx, uh, Federal Express, Boeing 757-200 freighter, registration 949 Fox Delta, performing flight 1170 from Fort Worth Alliance, Texas to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeehaw! Uh, hey, ge- hey, Larry, geezer, with two crew, was cleared for a visual approach to and landing on runway 18 left. However, they lined up with runway 18 right, and continued for a landing on runway 18 right. After the... What is that? Oh, interesting. I'm hearing something weird. Do you hear that, Liz? Yeah, it might have been me. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm sc- I was scratching my face. I didn't think it was near my earphone. I don't hear anything. Is I it I was me? hearing these like really boop, 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 boop. Like these tones oh. that I've never heard before. Oh, it was like a... Not the, bo- not the boop, boop. No, it wasn't a min-safe altitude warning or uh, or the enhanced ground proximity warning. I don't know what it was. It's something I've never heard before, but it was very loud and clear. Okay, uh, where was where was we? Um, they landed. Yeah. Okay, so they land. The uh, aircraft vacated the runway at the end, uh, one eight right, which is the not the right. Well, it was right the right runway, not the correct runway. Uh, the crew informed Tower that they had landed on the wrong run, wrong runway. Oh, they finally figured it out after they landed. On July 8th, 2022, the NTSB released their preliminary report and summarized the sequence of events. Uh, according to the flight crew, the incident flight was uh, on the final leg of their third night of a five-night trip and had scheduled departure time of 0330 in the morning. Central Daylight Time. The captain was pilot flying. The first officer was pilot monitoring. ADSB data indicated that the air incident aircraft took off from uh, Fort Worth about 3:32. The flight crew reported that the departure, takeoff, and climb phases of the flight were normal. They climbed to flight level 310, briefed their expected approach to runway 18 left, ooh, and began their descent. So they—that's what they were expecting to do. They, land on, yeah. Yes. Okay. okay. But um, they reached they reached for the correct runway yes. or the runway they were supposed to land on. Yes. And did not land on that runway. Correct. And interesting to note here before you continue reading uh-huh. the um sounds like the NTSB uh report puts in here two eight left multiple times. They actually wrote two eight left and two eight right further down in this um article. So there's no two eight. No, there's also. a two six uh, single, not left right, but just a regular yeah. two six. But, uh, but the main runways are coming real. up here. It's two eight is in there a couple times, and that's incorrect. It's one eight. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I'll try to read the correct runway Does that designation. Mean there has to be an accident report against for the, the NTSB. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to need to do a report on this report. We yes. need all the reports. <laughs> a preliminary. Uh, what would you call that? Analysis. Anal- report, uh, report. Narrative report. <laughs> uh, anyway. um, okay, so they climbed to 310, briefed their expected approach to runway 18 left, then they began their descent. They obtained and reviewed automatic automatic terminal information service, ATIS information, set frequencies for the ILS runway 18 left. The weather was instrument meteorological conditions during the descent until they passed 10,000 feet. At that point, they broke out of the clouds. They were on a 360-degree downwind vector. And the first officer had the airport beacon in sight. 
The controller then cleared the flight for the visual approach and landing on runway 18 left. The FO correctly read. I'm sorry. Read, I'm gonna, we're going to beacon inside. We're yeah. going to have an interesting discussion here with Captain Nick. I can tell about uh, visual approaches. So. Okay. I'm looking right. forward yeah, to yeah, throw, yeah. The, throw that thing up there, uh, Liz. Right. The, uh, coming up. Okay, yep. coming up. There. Okay. The, oh, on the chart. That's Moscow light, is it? That's no, it's, well, yes. And it's on, and it's like a star with a circle around it. And uh, I can't, it's so small. I can't see where exactly it is, but it's usually somewhere pretty close to the tower. Not always. And and when you're flying at night and you're flying visual approaches, where is it? Right. uh, If you look at the see ten thousand see ten thousand feet along that one runway, Mm -hmm. just to the left of it, there's a little star. It says Central Tower, and there's a star with a circle on it. Okay, so it's on the tower then. Uh, Central Tower, uh, just to the uh, west of the yeah. (laughs) What? What'd you say, Nick? Just where my mouse is. Can't you oh, okay. See yeah, right where. I don't right have where next... uh, the detail doesn't come out that well on my screen for some reason. Yeah, uh, like struggling to see. No, it. It. It, yeah, I can see all the I can see all the wind socks with lights. Coincident <laughs> uh, with the control tower and not. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, crew. I should have put that uh, graphic in the uh, actual note so you could get, you guys um, could see yeah, it. Just a little bit north of the airfield reference point. Okay, so. And the, and the reason why that's important at night when you're flying a visual approach, of course, if you're, if you never fly visual approaches, then it's, who cares? <laughs> but, uh, we cowboys here in I the U S uh, we fly these visual approaches and, yeehaw. um, well, yeah. And, uh, you see the, when you see the beacon, it's nice to know exactly where on the airport, because there are la- airport layouts where the beacon is like way over on one side of the aircraft. I mean, the airport probably nowhere near the landing runway. So, you know, it's kind of nice to know for orientation, SA, uh, situational awareness. Ah, okay. Um, so where was I? Uh, okay, they... First officer saw the beacon. Okay, the, the first officer had the airport beacon in sight. The controller then cleared the flight for the... And, and another reason why the airport beacon, identifying it, um, especially if you're using visual procedures, is that... There is a certain um, color pattern for the airport beacon, and if it's a military airport, then it has a different sequence of colored lights. Uh, or if it's a uh, if it's a water, what do they call those um, kind of airports? Um, a seaplane anyway, base. Seaplane base it has a different kind of a sequence and color, and so anyway, you're looking to make sure to that you have identified the correct. Um, airport when you're when you're flying at night anyway the uh, maximum distance that you can receive a visual approach clearance uh, eye hall boxes is 35 nautical miles ding okay um the captain asked the fo to set an extended center line on the flight management system okay um I would assume that he did it to the correct runway. About 4:13 central daylight time the airplane landed on runway 18 right exited at taxiway Lima five at the end of the runway and notified the tower controller. They had landed on the wrong, wrong runway. All frequencies were combined in the Tulsa air traffic control tower at the time of the event. The controller reported clearing the aircraft for approach and landing in one call and did not become aware of the wrong runway landing until the crew reported it. Oh, Hmm. The facility reported the traffic volume was light at the time of the incident. The control tower was located in between the runway one, eight left and one, eight right, which were approximately a mile apart. 
Uh, so, I, you know, what was the controller doing? I mean, and t- I've I mean, lo- they, they, you know, presuming they're looking one direction or another and the aircraft lands, either they're not going to see them or they're going to see them on the wrong side. Yeah, because it's not like these are two runways are really close together. I've, I've landed no. at Tulsa many, many times. They're kind of, they're quite far apart. I mean, if he was facing away from 18 right well, then you wouldn't see them at? at all but if you well he would looking at runway one a left but he would have expected to see yeah, the aircraft there say, coming in on he was staring at the approach of one eight uh why can't left. i see them yeah, <laughs> should be any minute now it's clear below ten thousand feet but geez i'll get mm. the binoculars right <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know clearly the blame goes to the crew for landing on the incorrect runway but I have to what say, there's doing? a little bit of blame, but, I think. You know, just a little con- question, like, confirm your landing Yeah, are you lined up with 1-8? Uh, yeah, confirm you're lined up with 1-8 left. Confirm expecting 1-8 left. Yeah. yeah. Mm, not what I'm showing. Mm-hmm. High Hall Box um, wants to know, when the last time was you saw the airport from 35 nautical miles away at night? Um, lot, well, I can I've, see Charlotte from 35 miles away at night. Easy. I've seen airports 80 nautical miles away oh, yeah. at night. Depends on depends on the area, depends on the terrain, depends on what you're familiar with, too. And we always joke around when I see an aer- airport that far away at night that, you know, I said, well, tell them we have the airport inside. And they go, no, no, don't, don't do that because 35 nautical miles is the maximum that we're allowed to yeah. be issued a, a, a visual approach. And again, a visual approach you know, when you're on an instrument flight plan is an instrument procedure. Correct. It's not a VFR procedure. Yeah. So why do we think? I mean, they uh, they set the frequencies for the ILS up, mm-hmm. and the the guy asked for a center line, which is presumably just an electronic line you can generate mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. their yep. map display. Um, were they not looking at these? Uh, you know, they just looked out. Maybe the window they were went, oh, having dyslexic moments as well, one. where everything they said was left, but everything they, they put in was right. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. possible. It's possible. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, these are one of these uh, things where you kind of scratch your head and go, how, how, how in the world could that happen? And I mean, if you're looking at the airport, most of the airports to your left, if you're lined up with the right side. Yes. Yeah. And that, probably le- a bunch that of right blank, runway like, is a lot nothing. shorter. Yeah, that too. Yeah, that was going to be my next point. Because as you remember last week, we talked about a similar incident Pittsburgh. where the guy lined up but those two runways were quite were exactly close. He same. lined up on the run one way they're very long and the contr- yeah and the Difference. controller said uh he, he didn't want to send them around because uh, they were on short files and he was a bit worried that uh, they might crash because i don't know why he, he just said oh they were too close to the runway so i didn't send them around uh, but those runways were a similar distance here we got a runway of six thousand feet against ten thousand feet. Yep. That's a considerable distance uh, in your stopping. Now, this is not a. It's a seven five seven. It's not a small airplane. Uh, it's not a seven thirty seven. So you know, but six thousand feet is fine. But the end of the runway would presumably have come up unexpectedly quick mm-hmm. for them. Uh, and certainly if they had thought, oh, we'll just roll to the end here and not put the brakes on very hard or something, mm-hmm. they would have had a really bad shock no if they run off Ooh, the end. Boy. Yeah. yeah, when you're seeing the lights change colors way before you were thinking they should. You go, wait a minute. Oh, look, look. Someone's made a mistake with the light pattern. Look, they, they're yeah. turning red and white. <laughs> yeah, why is it that? Why? Yeah, you're right. Somebody put the yeah, wrong bulbs why is in. That? <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with this airport? 
Yeah, so, you know, Man. a lot of things. Of I think it's Larry's fault. Way. It could be Larry's fault, Liz. You're correct. Is he in charge of lighting or something? I think he is in charge of the airport lighting at Tulsa. Are there any? Anyway, um, yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm hoping. <laughs> well, we're never, we're never going to know. Uh, this is, well, there is a preliminary report. So maybe we will learn more when the. Um, when the final report comes out, yes, is this confirmation bias? According to Neil, yeah, uh, they expected to see one runway. They say, yeah, I think that's a, a major player in this. They see that, oh, that's the runway, mm-hmm. and you know, I, just like the the dream lifter that landed at uh, uh, Colonel Jabara Airport, short uh, eight mm-hmm. nine miles short of McConnell Air Force Base. I mean, th- thinking. What did you well, not I was, look at I was your nav about display? That. You know, yeah. Like, when we started reading this, I was thinking about that. I was like, well, at least they landed at the correct airport, even if it was the wrong runway. I'll tell you, you know, after you know doing the show and reading about all these incidents and talking about all these incidents at night, visual conditions and that kind of thing, I've adopted adopted the policy that when I fly at night, which is not that often anymore, uh, I even though if it's clear in a million, and I've been to the airport several times, I'll say, uh, request vectors for the ILS approach because I just think it's safer and it, that will keep us from screwing it up and landing in the wrong place. You, you're starting to sound like me, Jeff. Every time I flew to America, they say, uh, take the visual for blah, blah, blah. I say to the FO, no, tell him I want an ILS. <laughs> now, you know, and I'm just talking about at night. During the day, especially to an airport that I've been to many, many times and I'm comfortable with, I, I don't have a problem with it. But it's at night or high terrain, I'll say, even if it's clear in a million, nope, I, I want vectors for the uh, instrument landing system approach because I just, you know, want to make sure that uh, I get everybody safely on the ground, Absolutely. including me. All right. Yep. All right, uh, you guys ready to move on to the next one? Well, those first yeah. two are doozies. Um, here's another doozy, and um, I'm, I'm glad that we have an Airbus pilot with us. Maybe <laughs> he—I don't know. Maybe he can. I'm not anymore. Well, uh, you were you're the closest thing we've got. Yeah, so you're, exactly. you're you're in charge of this one. Yeah. Okay. Oops. Um, shoot, I thought I'd left oh, enough God, of no, that to read. Either. Okay. Uh, an American airline. This is from uh, what is it called? Um, something live or something. Hang on, it's going to show the little thing here when I hit. really TC reconstruction of flights. No, the what does it say? The Just a can you read that? You can see ATC. You can you see can ATC. You can see ATC. ATC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. That's it. Uh, although I can't see it very well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> With a microscope. Here we go. Okay. This occurred on the 22nd of June, so uh, not too long ago, um, at Dallas Fort Worth Airport at 9:53 at night local time. An American Air, Airlines Airbus A321 Neo. By the way, I looked for this on Aviation Herald. It was not there. Uh, A321 Neo. Registration, so it's a new airplane, 429 Alpha November, performing flight 1336 from Dallas-Fort Worth International to Orlando uh, after departure, declared a mayday, reported multiple failures, stuck flaps, airspeed indicator failure, and requested return to Dallas-Fort Worth International. Let's listen to the uh, air traffic control recordings. And departure, American 1338, uh, with you at uh, 3,400. Looks like we're going to come back to the field. Uh, I think it's 1336, isn't it? 
American, North Pettis American 1336. Yeah. Okay. We're just going to confirm this now. Yeah, okay. We're going to make it, make it, make it, make it, emergency, come back to the field. American 36, Roger, maintain that. You can maintain 4,000. Can maintain 4,000? 4,000, American 1336. American 1336, turn left lane 050, back to the airport. Left turn 050, back to the airport, American 1336. Six, what are your intentions? Good question. American 1336, understand you need to land at DFW. Do you want uh, 117 or 117 right? Do you have a preference? Uh, So they're busy. American 1336, uh, one off your right side, turning behind you now. If you're having a hard time with the officer, 2700. Yeah, right now they're showing 3700. American 1336, we got uh, clear sky in front of you now. No more traffic is going to be in your way. Just let me know when you're ready for a base for 1700. Roger. Well, you know, American 1336. Yeah, so they're about 300 feet below the altitude they were instructed to fly, but that might be because. American 1336 for. Uh, our emergency frequency change to mine one three five point seven thirty five point seven. Thirty five seven American thirteen thirty five six thirty six. Okay, so thirty five seven wasn't recorded by live ATC, so we don't have that information, but we're looking at the depiction on the uh, video, it looks like they went out there and did a right three sixty and got back. American thirteen thirty six, uh, runway one seven center for the land, wind one three zero one zero. 
Okay, for some reason. Oh. American 1336, clear to land, runway 1770, wind 13010. I think live ATC had... And for control, next uh, aircraft land is the emergency Airbus 321. He is on a... Uh, ...18 Was recording this frequency and probably he was transmitting on both 35.7 and the normal tower frequency. Okay, 1336, you can exit there or just stay on the railway, whatever you need to do. Okay, they landed safely. And they're right behind you, they'll check you out as soon as you stop. They took and the also, high uh, speed. Command is on frequency when you need to talk to Okay, so we didn't hear any of that conversation at all, but uh, they vacated the runway, stopped for inspection. A few minutes later, they continued to taxi to the gate. That's all. If you like this, like and subscribe <laughs> to uh, yeah. the YouTube yeah. channel. Yeah. Absolutely. The pilot guy. By all means, yeah. like and subscribe to the airline pilot guy show. <laughs> mm. <laughs> we uh, appreciate it. Yeah, it was not our uh, video. So, reconstruction, uh, it's nice if you watch the uh, video or click on the video in the uh, show notes. Uh, you can see the, uh, the simulated path of the uh, flight. And, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure exactly what happened uh, there. Um, obviously, some th- something to do with the flaps stuck, uh, maybe you know when they were attracting and they got stuck and they shut down in that position. And then something also about the one of the um, altitude or airspeed indicator, yeah, yeah, some kind of an air data system problem, which is a big deal. Uh, the flaps not so much a big deal, especially if they're stuck out. Um, you know that's that's one of the better problems to have if they're stuck. Uh, retracted, that's a, more of a deal. But if they're already out, you know, you just go back and, and land where you started from, which is what they did. The air data system issue, that's a bigger deal. But as long as only one of them is acting up and you have a good one, and you can confirm which one is the good one, <laughs> that's the, the hard part. And once you have made sure that you have identified the the good and bad, then you can use that and proceed with your flight. And that sounds like what they did. Um, and, um, yeah. Uh, what do you, what do you think, Nick? I think you, you're spot on. I mean, that's, uh, uh, a very good uh, explanation. Um, the flaps, uh, would come up as flaps locked for a multitude of reasons. So I've no idea which one caused it. Uh, it, uh, can be the wingtip brakes coming on, uh, and out of interest that happens every 10 days. So if you don't service the flaps and reset the clock, those brakes are going to come on at a certain time. What? Uh, what? 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 what now? Yeah, I'm not familiar so with say this. Say that again. What are you saying? You've got <laughs> to service well, Who designed the, uh, this system? That sounds problematic. <laughs> yeah, the wingtip brake system. Many what the hell? times. <laughs> yeah, the um, the flaps are locked by brakes that come on and go clank. Oh, you're okay. Not move those brakes. Okay. Okay. Those brakes. Okay. Uh, and uh, they're timed on a clock. And uh, if you don't service the flaps every 10 days, uh, oh. those brakes are going to come on days. regardless. And they've happened more than once oh. that the engineers have forgot the service uh, and reset the clock. That seems and, awfully uh, frequent, no? Apparently not, no. I mean, I those engineers right. crawl over those airplanes an awful lot. So mm-hmm. uh, it might be, hmm. it might be um, awfully frequent for a uh, twatter, but not for a <laughs> yeah. big, big <laughs> handsome, lovely Airbus that needs lots of attention <laughs> to keep it flying I nicely. 
Uh, anyway, that would be one reason the wingtip brakes come on. Of course, uh, flat symmetry will also bring the uh, w the flat brakes on, mm -hmm. wingtip brakes on, uh, to stop the asymmetry from progressing. Because obviously, mm -hmm. if you get one set of flaps come up and the other one doesn't, you tend to turn upside down. Um, so those, as soon as there's a symmetry detected, those brakes come on. Uh, mm. And hydraulic failures can do it. Uh, plus also the slap flat control computer failures will bring on them. But uh, like you say, if you've got them out and they won't retract, all you've really got to worry about is controlling your speed. And it's very simple. You grab the selected speed knob and crank it back to a speed that keeps you from overspeeding the flaps because otherwise you'll damage them if you continue to accelerate with them stuck in position. Uh, and then uh, it's a matter of uh, going through the checklist. Now, that is not the easiest checklist in the world to perform, the slaps, flaps locked checklist. Um, and it has, uh, you know, it, it's something we practice regularly in the simulator so that we can keep abreast of it uh, and uh, just not fall into any traps because it, it, there are two different ways of um, can the computers on board the aircraft working the speed. They can work the speeds out for the actual flap position or the flap handle position. And, of course, you may not have the, – the, those two may not agree anymore because if your flaps have locked, you might have tried to select them up so you'll have, say, moved the lever to one. The flaps are stuck at two. Uh, so, you know, you're going to get a, a disagree. So you'd have to go through manual calculations now of your approach speeds uh, and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and, um, you know, it just takes a little time, which is probably why the crew were a little distracted, uh, because they're, they're trying to do these procedures and make calculations and flip through graphs and etc. All the while, they're just doing one circuit to land. So they were probably pretty busy on the flight deck. Uh, the airspeed indicator failure, I don't know why that yeah. is going to happen at the same time. And we're also talking multiple failures, so there may be something else that's happened in the background that we're not aware of. But uh, I would say the crew had their hands full. They they sounded very calm and collected on the radio, which I they love. Uh, really good. Uh, is a Mayday appropriate? Well, for me, a Mayday is a very serious i'm possibly going to lose this airplane and they may have thought that initially because it was very confusing but i would normally say that's uh you would need a call of pan pan rather than mayday but you can always downgrade a mayday mayday gets everyone's attention should do anyway mm -hmm. uh and once you've decided that oh actually this is controllable if you've got the spare capacity it can be worth downgrading of a pan, although most air traffickers don't really care. You're, you're an aircraft with an emergency. Oh, I'm going to give you priority, which is fine. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's about it. If I was more current, I'd be able to give you more gen, but I think that covers most. Yeah, but so here in the uh, US of A, Cowboy Land, um, we are used to like declaring an emergency, and that's or not. And uh, in the Air Force, we had like precautionary that is kind of like a pan pan. But in the civilian world over here, I'm, I'm not, I don't think a lot of people ever declare precautionaries. They just or declare pans, even. That's or even pan pans. That would be very yeah. odd to hear on the radio here. Yeah. Everyone knows what it means, but people are like, 
Huh? They say it in Canada. I'm, yeah, it's well, just, you have a problem it, or not? I'm just surprised yeah. that he said "Mayday, Mayday, Mayday." I'm, I'm too, actually. I think it's because well, he's been listening it. to I'm our show. I'm very glad that he did. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the message is getting White. through. It because could be Captain that's, White, Liz. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the IKO uh, terminology for Americans. Well, we we and, know everybody here knows it. It just and you know what? Honestly, I, I mean, I'm I'm I've kind of started to incorporate that into my head. So. When I have a situation, even the last time I was in the sim, I said, mayday, mayday, mayday. You know, we're declaring an right. emergency, blah, blah. You know, so oh. it's, it's finally, you know, like finally kind of sinking into my head a little bit in my uh, cowboy head. Uh, let's I see. I haul boxes said must have been the Windows 11 update that went wrong. It could be. I don't know. Does uh, uh, Airbus, Airbus use Windows 11? Airbus is Mac, not Windows. Really? Uh, Boeing are Windows. But oh, yeah, that makes sense. It really does, actually. Um, <laughs> Boeing's like is... MS-DOS. <laughs> <laughs> Basic. But, uh, but seriously, yeah. folks, uh, he covered, just as you mentioned, Jeff, he covered both bases. So he said, mayday, 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 I'm declaring an emergency. Yeah. You shouldn't need to say that second bit, except that, of course, there may be air traffickers out there yeah. who aren't familiar with what the mayday means. So mm -hmm. uh, he's covered both bases, which I think is quite Nev's clear. Nev's asking a question yeah. here. So, Nev, uh, no, hey, Nev. Um, I'm glad quite he's late. not, he doesn't Where see Nev all is. the cables um, in, in my particular <laughs> setup here. He'd be very oh, it's disappointed. It's like cable in chaos me. here, too. Uh, how so. quickly can the crew get task saturated in this kind of scenario? Very quickly. <laughs> yeah, particularly if you're dealing with all the additional calls that air traffic want out of you. Because yeah. they'll want a number of passengers, they want fuel remaining, fuel on board, they'll yeah. want... Uh, you want to wish runway to your one? Yeah, no, and you know, when you get a chance, pick up the local ATIS, if you don't mind. Nature of the emergency. <laughs> you know. Yeah, we're not busy. We're trying to keep the so airplane from crashing. In the sim, you tend not to get all those additional annoyance calls. But right. in real life, you've got other aircraft on the frequency, the air traffic are going. And meanwhile, you too are actually really busy, both flying the airplane and controlling it in a difficult situation and going through. You've probably got your four fingers stuck in various different parts of the QRH. Um, and you've got your electronic flight checking the, the FCOMs to make sure you haven't missed anything. Um, yeah, it's not easy. Nope. And it's like, oh, in traffic at your 12 o'clock and also yeah. your so traffic at like not, <laughs> yeah. you know, too dissimilar altitudes. So, I would say, uh, hey, would you do me a favor? Move everybody out of my way, yeah. please. Why? You can I'm tell trying them to keep to this airplane Why are you crashing? trying to tell me to look out that's, for them? You move yeah. them. Yeah, that's what a mayday is supposed to be. I mean, yeah. you know, in the old days, they used to put you on a separate frequency. So you had no one else to talk to except your controller who was zeroed in on well, your... Well, they actually did do your, that at that at some point yeah. here, you know. And that's why we didn't get that bit took of... took them a second to do it, but they did. I wish they hadn't done boxes it. Just makes a good point. <laughs> he said, uh, you, you tend to work split duty here when this emergency. So one of you flies the aircraft and the other runs the drills. And uh, it, although, generally speaking, the one who's running the drills should keep the pilot flying, the one who's handling the airplane abreast of where you are in the checklist, if they're long and complicated... Uh, you know, there will be long periods where you're working through various tech, you know, various button presses and resets and things, and you may not be able to, and he may not have the capacity to hear what you're telling him at, at times because he's working the radio as well as flying the airplane, as well as navigating and deciding how much time you're going to need before you get on the runway and which runway to land on, on all those difficult 
um, question. So yes, you do split. And uh, it's very important that when you come back together, you're both on the same page. So you need to have a little mini brief as to where you've got in the emergency drills and, and where you've got in the flying of the aircraft and setting up of the approach. And someone has to do that. And usually uh, the pilot flying is a bit busy. He can't be heads down uh, if he's working, uh, you know, flying the airplane manually particularly at the same time. So this is why you've got to get in the simulator and do this regularly. And this is why when we lost the facility of having a third man on the flight deck, the flight engineer, so many pilots went, this is ridiculous. We mm -hmm. needed that third body. You may not need him very often. He may not be essential very often, but the sort of situation you need him is when you've got a multiple failure problem mm -hmm. and he can be a vital asset, but we don't have him anymore, so there's no point crying over spilt milk, I guess. And while um, sometimes it's kind of a hassle to have somebody on your jump seat in a situation like this, it's nice because then they can become that third crew member and they can start doing communications for you and that kind of thing. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, use, use your all assets. your resources yeah, and assets. Um, yeah. That's why, uh, you know, when we, uh, when we had a heavy crew, we generally always have the heavy crew on board uh, the or into the flight deck for landing, even if they might've run out of duty time. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you do have a problem and you've got four guys to help you work the problem, you're much more likely to come to a uh, good result. I don't know. I'm going to take umbrage to that. I'm kind of heavy. Um, I need to lose some weight. Um, you know, let's, can well, we you come should up? go on the same diet as me, Jeff, uh, and then you won't be so heavy. How's that working out, by the way? Uh, well, I've still got the diarrhea, but apart from that, I'm fine. Thank you. I think if you take some uh, go-around-a-cillin... Then the stomach oh, okay. will, will prevent you from eating. Too, so. The go around and still, I think, will make it worse. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he has to have stuff. Good point. Actually, bad. Yeah. I well, I wasn't I really looking for that detail, uh, Nick. But thank you. Yeah. I, I meant well, I meant the weight loss part of it, not the not the diet. Well, when you're emptying everything out of your bottom twice a day, you lose a lot of weight. Yes, what? very good. I All right. Time to bowl. <laughs> But perhaps we ought to wait for getting to know you before I talk about that. I think we just got to know you, and yeah, we, uh, we'll more skip than we you like in that section. <laughs> we don't like yeah. it, Lizette. So. We got to know you, and we just don't like it. <laughs> okay, number D. Okay, we're going. <laughs> D. Uh, uh, final report, accident, I arrow. 737-800 registration, 820-TJ, performing flight 3518 from Victorville, California, to San Diego. We talked about this we shortly did. after it happened in May of 2020. With 88 passengers, 7 crew, departed Victorville's runway 17, completed the seemingly uneventful flight with a safe landing on San Diego's runway 27 about 41 minutes after departure. Following landing, it was discovered parts had come off the vertical tail leading uh, the vertical tail's leading edge as well as left side in flight. Uh, the uh, preliminary, no, the final report has now been issued uh, July 8th, 2022. Um, improper installation of dorsal fin attach bolts, which caused the dorsal fin to separate during flight. 
substantially damaging the left horizontal stabilizer. Uh, so they, the bolt installed in position on the right side of the dorsal fin was not the correct part number, and the bolt was longer than required. The photographs also showed remnants of old sealant at each of the bolt locations, but no evidence that sealant was applied during maintenance of the dorsal fin in February 2019, less than three months before the accident. The seven missing bolts for the dorsal fin structure became loose, had fractured, or were not properly installed. And uh, so there you go. Bad maintenance uh, procedures, apparently, in QA. Uh, before they released this airplane as airworthy. Yep. All right. That, that's interesting. Uh, that's not the manufacturer. That's um, work that was done uh, in routine routine maintenance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think so. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yep. So poor maintenance procedures. You know, uh, it's a it's a it's a not one of the major airlines in the U.S. So they're probably trying to save money wherever they can. They may have used maintenance, you know, that maintainers that weren't, you know, at the top of the list. I don't know. I don't want to cast aspersions or anything, but apparently their QA uh, wasn't very good. So I did that last week, and I was going to apologize. I, you don't cast dispersions, you cast aspersions. Oh, yeah. That's what mm-hmm. I said, cast aspersions. It may have oh, said, sorry. sounded like I, I said dispersions, but we, cast aspersions. We have aspersions. a family cast joke aspersions. where we used to, we, ch- we changed difficult words and turned oh, them into I, something else. So I, I do that I, all I the time. I into that trap last week. Yeah. <laughs> Casting um, dispersions. That was my fault. Yeah, well, no problem. It was uh, my displeasure, uh, you know, taking <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, uh, let's see. I need to get a. I need to uh, get something queued up, uh, a video file. This was a remnant of the um, captain that got sucked off. Uh, um, sorry, <laughs> Wait, sucked what? out of the. Wow. Sucked out of the aeroplane. That's a different thing. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, well, those are two different got, ins- ins- I wish I could remember that. Wind, when the windshield blew off because they put the wrong bolts on. Oh, yeah. So uh, Yes, yes, yes. This, this is, this no, is, that, was a, that was definitely an aircraft issue. Yeah. Maintenance uh, issue. So, uh, yeah, maintenance, yeah, exactly. So the if, other one if was that a, engineer uh, had done his homework and gone, oh, that's an interesting accident, I'll read up about that. Uh, and then perhaps he would have double checked before he put the wrong <laughs> bolts in. Awkward. <laughs> awkward. Yes, Nev. Very awkward. Okay, <laughs> now. Okay, moving on. Right now, we have yep. talked uh, about this concept on uh, the show before in the past, uh, you know, circular runways. Mm-hmm. And apparently, we have some video of somebody uh, trying out. We have, the, we have uh, one in North Carolina. Yeah, the, they're doing some trials in North Carolina. Here we go. Let's watch this. strut of a high-wing Cessna, I'm guessing. Looks like a 172, 182. 172, 182, something like that. They're uh, they're touching down on a, not a runway, it's a road, a curving to the right road in a very beautiful part of uh, the country. They miss several cars and they, oh, look at all those pieces from Steph's Jeep uh, in the uh, in the middle lane <laughs> there that they're, they're avoiding very well. And oh, quick, there's a taxiway. Quick, yeah, take that. Oh, yeah, there's a taxiway. Can, can pull off here. Oh, there, he's stopping because there's a stop sign. 
Oh, very good. You can recognize a stop sign from the back. I'm impressed. Yeah. Well, you know, actually... Actually, stop. When I first <laughs> looked at this, I'm thinking, why didn't they just go on that little road? And I'm thinking, no, they're thinking, I'm going to be blocking traffic if I do that. So I'm going to put it right here. Considerate Very considerate. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So it looks oh, well, like the engine... Impressive was running stuff um but yeah, i guess maybe it wasn't you can providing have, you power can, exactly you can have engine power that's insufficient to maintain altitude so i don't know exactly what the nature of their uh issue was here um yeah but yeah i um i was gonna say something else about that and i just lost my it thought was gonna about be, I, it was gonna be so profound profound it was gonna be excellent I yes don't remember. But yeah, no, you can you can have a you know an issue that isn't causing um, complete loss of power. Oh, I know what I was going to say about it. So the um, the part of North Carolina that this happened in um, is in the western part of the state where the terrain is actually quite high in a lot of places. So um, this is Swain County, North Carolina, which I believe is like Bryson City and west of like Waynesville and Cherokee area. Okay, so area. like in the Smoky Mountains. In the Smoky Mountains, so making yeah. it out. There's not really a place called Waynesville. Yeah. Yeah, I've just been there. Absolutely. Is that near Wayne's World? Um, <laughs> could be. But, it might be. You know, Wayne That's is a big guy there, and uh, they yeah. named a village yeah. for him, Waynesville. Yes, the county well, um, Bryson City. Yeah, west of, west of Asheville, basically, like before you get to Tennessee, if you're unfamiliar with kind of up in the area, the towns that I not too far from where I was living. Uh, exactly, North Georgia Mountains. Exactly, and I think you know I, I looked at this one when this happened the other week, and I think the minimum safe altitude out there is like. 6,600 feet or something. So it's, it's you know, not low, but not, or not high, high, but not um, like sea level. So if you have some sort of loss of power, power reduction, um, it may be um, insufficient to maintain a safe altitude to where you can get back to the place where you could, the airport where you could land safely or the place where you started. So. <laughs> Would yeah, you? I um, thought he did a really nice job because uh, mm -hmm. it was, it was a narrow track he had to follow mm -hmm. to stay you know, between all the vehicles, and mm -hmm. I thought he did a great job. Uh, and I don't know how he got around the corner. That's really <laughs> that aircraft has really good cornering. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm telling you, the people, the advocates for the whole circular runway thing, are going to look at this video and go, "See, I told you it can be done." Uh, yeah, but mm -hmm. uh, and what's more, done. there circular runway's got a banked track, so I know this one didn't even have a have a banked road to land on knows where Waynesville is. yeah lanesville uh, waynesville according to neil landworm is uh, next to batman town you know bat cave <laughs> is also in western north carolina just outside of Asheville. oh well, for real you're not making that up no I'm, I'm that is that is an actual the bat cave in is in i didn't you know i thought it was somewhere out in california but wow well, okay is that where they Wayne made man? the bat bomb right yep wow I don't know. okay well that was fun I enjoyed that, mm -hmm. uh, and good job, as you said, good job, good job. So uh, the mm. next one <laughs> is 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 an interesting one as well. Um, this is from <laughs> Paddle Your Own Canoe, right. of course. <laughs> yes. uh, an Indian airline was forced to delay hundreds of flights on Saturday, as insiders claim the reason behind the disruption was because the cabin crew pulled sickies so that they could attend a massive recruitment event being held by a rival airline. God <laughs> low, love the loyalty. Low-cost low Indian airline Indigo operated just 45% of its domestic flights on time on Saturday after the alleged mass sick-out wreaked havoc with the carrier schedule, uh, the uh, Air India. Uh, the cabin crew uh, are believed to have attended a recruitment... No, I'm sorry... Uh, 
Indigo, and then uh, they uh, attended the recruitment event held by Air India, which is in the middle of a massive hiring blitz. India's Directorate of Civil Aviation has said it will open an investigation to get to the bottom of the allegations. How would uh, Steph, Steph as yes. HR handle that? Yeah, how would you, uh, Steph, as HR of the uh, APG conglomerate, uh, hmm. handle this situation? Well, this is a tricky one, right? Because yeah. uh, obviously you don't want your cabin crew to leave for greener pastures. Um, so I'd say double down and offer them some some incentives so they don't call out sick again and, and mass to go to your rival carrier. Yeah. Got to keep the good people around. Now, if these are employees that you don't care for very much, then maybe just fire them. Let them go. Fire them. Yeah. yeah. Without pay. Mm-hmm. I must admit, uh, I'd be nice to see Air India get a um, injection of uh, funds from Tata, which are an enormous um, conglomerate Tata group. Um, I didn't know much about them till uh, you know I had a friend of mine who uh, became one of their senior um, man management uh, executives, and they are just vast. So. Um, you know, if Air India is uh, going to get some uh, funds from them, they're probably going to have plenty to play with. Indeed, it looks like they're going to um, buy somewhere in the region of 300 new aircraft. Oh, I'm going, wow. wow. That's, that's a, um, so massive order of uh, single-aisle aircraft. Uh, and they are, in, of course, in talks with both Airbus and Boeing. So Air India would be considered the like the major slash international flag carrier, probably pay better, better benefits, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, they're they're closer to a traditional, um, you know, legacy airliner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a state carrier. I All mean, right. they are they are they are independent now, but um, yeah, okay. So you could see uh, the. Air crew's desire to perhaps seek greener passages or pa- pastures. Um, all right. Well. Yeah, you want to watch out for those green passages. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the green Nick ones are better than the, the others. Brown uh, ones. Yeah. yeah, the brown ones. Okay. Let's not go there. Uh, all right, well, too late. Uh, let's <laughs> move on to this. Help save us. Yes. Getting to know us. The time of the show where we recover from things that we say that we regret and uh yeah it's our our time to kind of get uh to know what's been happening with the crew members between shows and uh let's see ladies first uh let's uh let's start with stephanie sure um well, I missed you guys the last episode. Yeah, we missed you. And I haven't listened to it, so I have no idea what was discussed. Oh, we didn't um, say anything will... derogatory about you at all, so I wouldn't listen if I were you. Excellent. But I didn't. Uh, he did. <laughs> I see how it is. Rick did. Well, as HR, I think I'm obligated to listen, so I will probably listen at some point. I, <laughs> I see a lot of You know me. I wouldn't say anything nice. Happening or, here. Nice. And, you know, <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's all good. But I missed you guys. I'm sorry. It just got... Uh, life got a little crazy last week. It's been really busy um, on all fronts, and it's still busy, but um, really happy to see you guys because it's nice to be here. Um, did some flying this past weekend. Um, you might recall last year, we talked about flying our um, Twin Otter quite a bit and um, had done a lot of work to get checked out on that aircraft. And then um, 
was really close to that point and kind of had the uh, sign off and blessing from our uh, chief pilot and instructor. And um, in for I didn't have the insurance requirements yet for the, the hours minimum. So even though I was cleared to sit in the left seat, someone had to fly with me if I was going to fly that aircraft for a little while. Um, and then um, because it's a, it's a, she's an older aircraft and has, um, you know, maintenance needs and, and things like that. Was away for a while. I understand that. Um, main landing gear overhaul, hot section, and one of the um, inspection. Main of the landing engines. gear overhaul. That sounds oh. suspicious. Uh, no, it's it's a it's a time it's a time thing. <laughs> um, but basically, it equates to new main landing gear, um, and it's just a <gasps> times out. So or completely overhaul or you send off the old gear they get overhauled you get new gear um i don't know um but anyway the airplane was back and i now have um, the hours that the insurance is looking for so i finally got to solo the twin otter Yay! this past weekend just just you and about 50 parachutists in the back. Just me and uh, 22 uh, parachutists. <laughs> <laughs> Better late than never. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Jeff found good. the applause button. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, and um, yeah, so uh, just working backwards on the calendar, and I saw I haul boxes comment here. Um, I guess you guys probably talked about this, but I was in Atlanta the weekend before that. Well, specifically on Monday, um, I saw Captain Jeff. We had lunch mm -hmm. um, after I ran the Peachtree Road Race, which was a very good race for me. I wasn't sure what to expect that day because I hadn't done a lot of training specific to that race, but I ran a, a personal best on that course on a very hot and humid day. So that was also noteworthy and fun. Very nice. And not as exciting as your Not flying. as exciting as flying the Twin Otter. No, no. definitely not. But good. Well done. Yes. And um, got to see, um, ended up seeing Dispatcher Mike as well for a little while. That is his fine. And, and there were fireworks there. And there were some fireworks. We, we, blew, we blew some stuff up because it was the 4th of July. And that's yeah. what, you know, us cowboys do when we're feeling patriotic. So No fireworks between Steph and I, but between Steph no. and Mike, there were. That's all I can say. <laughs> cool. I mean, little, his wife little was disappointed, there, but to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, had, we did share some. Some tacos and things, though some fine yeah. Mexican food. Yeah, a, a, a traditional uh, yeah, Independence July Day, North, Fourth uh, of July, American <laughs> holiday food. Yeah. Let's eat Mexican food. <laughs> hey, a lot of the uh, traditional places are closed on July Fourth, so we got to go to the uh, the foreigners. They're not for buying that kind of stuff. I know that's what I best I can do. So, so yeah. So the weekend before that, flew a bunch on Saturday, Sunday. Went to Atlanta, ran, saw Jeff. Saw dispatcher Mike. Had a really busy week at work. Flew the otter. Sunday was really rainy. Been getting some stuff done around the house, trying to keep my head above water. Did water. you get any sleep at all in that whole time frame? What, sleep? What? Yeah. What is sleep? Yeah, we didn't think so. I don't know what that is, <laughs> but I look forward to experiencing it someday. I hear it's nice. Yes, it is. No, I. I for anyone who's truly concerned, I do sleep quite a bit. I enjoy sleep, and I sleep well. So, That's it's very good to know. Mm -hmm. um, what else? I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, this upcoming weekend, there won't be any flying for me. My um, neighbors are having a big shindig for their twice now postponed uh, wed 20th wedding anniversary. So I'll be attending that all weekend nice. with some other friends in town. All weekend, wow. And uh, yeah, it should be, be a nice kind of like relaxing right there weekend. 
at the at the little cove, or are you going to be going somewhere? A uh, different part of the lake because okay. they have a lot of people they've invited, so we've they've expanded to a larger venue for the weekend. Oh, nice! But on the same lake, mm-hmm. just the other side. Yep. It's a beautiful lake. Yes, it should be should be a very nice weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward to relaxing a little bit and uh, not <sighs> relaxing is, is difficult to do when there's a lot of projects around to be worked on and completed. But I'm going to try to take a step back nice. and. Let it go. Let it go. All right. Um, Thank you, Steph. Great to have you back with us. We missed you last week. Um, Captain Nick, uh, how are the, uh, how's the bowling going? (laughs) Well, no no real changes. I'm uh, I'm doing this final, big final match uh, on the county unbadged at the end of the month. So I've got a little while to prepare for that. Um, Entered a, a competition um, where we could have won £400, which would have been nice. Uh, but sadly, our team, uh, we didn't quite make the final, only by like one point. But, hmm. you know, you had to play a round robin of matches, and if you won every single one, you went through to the final, and we missed out on one match. So, damn. Um, it, it was a stinky hot. Sunny day, because we were in the middle of a bit of a heat wave here, which you guys giggle at, I know, because everything's hot and sticky where you live. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're and the temperature is going to continue to rise. Uh, next week it'll be above, uh, you know, it'll be 33, 34 degrees centigrade. So it's going to be a while. Um, and, uh, and when you're outdoor in the sunshine, uh, you do get a bit hot and a bit sunburned. So I've got red notes. Oh no! And, uh, yeah, like that flight there you go. that uh, set the wrong altimeter setting. <laughs> mm. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, that's the bowls. Uh, what else has been going on? Uh, not a great deal. Um, just um, ticking over and uh, getting stuff done. Uh, helping the lady wife out with some house jobs uh, and uh, enjoying myself. And of course, uh, now I'm doing plain tales every fortnight. There's one today, and I've got now two weeks to produce the next one. Uh, so I'll be getting on with that shortly. Excellent. Looking forward to this episode's installment. Thanks. And Over to you, Jeff. me, let's see, what do I have? I am officially on vacation. I started it on Sunday, and... I don't think I really have a heck of a lot to talk about other than we do have the uh, the new merchandise in the uh, APG store. And um, I'm assuming that Liz is showing have, that right yeah, now. Okay, have. there we go. Um, so there you see the uh, unisex um, version and the women's version of the T-shirt. And uh, the stickers are available there. And just sticker. to be sure... Um, that we uh, are clear about this because I, I don't think I expressed it well enough last week. I am printing um, here in the basement print shop uh, studio sleeping facility <laughs> in in this house um, in the the uh, former APG headquarters building uh, where I'm residing at the moment temporarily. Uh, we have uh, uh, some. I made some. Um, what do you call these things? Uh, heat uh, transfer things that I'm going to be printing with my heat press uh, on some shirts. And uh, this is separate from the ones that are available via the merchandise, the store, APG store. 
these are ones that are going to be hand done by me. And uh, I'm going to take those with me up to Oshkosh. And I'll make sure that I have a Sharpie with me as well so I can sign them if you want. And uh, so we are um, about 60 of of those or so. Uh, So not a heck of a lot of them. But uh, if you are someone listening right now, okay, listen, and you're going to Oshkosh and you see me, ask me for your free T-shirt. And uh, hopefully, uh, I'll have one still left over in your size. I'm only I, I limited it to medium, large, and extra large in the both uh, men's and women's t-shirt sizes. So um, if you can deal with that, um, they'll be available until they run out. So um, you know, and if you are not going to Oshkosh and you want to have a an Osh APG shirt, then they're available by the links that I'll have in the show notes. So, or you can just go to the website, go to APG store and then click on the, um, that top banner, which will take you to the Teespring store. And then you can order one for yourself and it'll be delivered to you directly. So there you go. Um, what else did I have there? Uh, Liz, uh, Noshkosh EAA Air Venture 2022. Yes, I'm going there. I canceled my non-air conditioned dorm room and uh, signed up for my spot in, in Camp Scholler uh, campsite. I'll be there in my new tent, uh, which I have actually um, I received uh, about a week or two ago, and I've set it up. Not outside though; it's in my uh, basement. You haven't here taken it down room. yet. I haven't, I haven't taken it down yet, Liz. Uh, I need to do that though soon. Uh, I probably should go somewhere nearby and actually go outside and set it up and make sure That's I know what the heck I'm doing. In Atlanta Park. <laughs> I just want to make sure that I don't look like a complete idiot putting up a tent uh, at Oshkosh. And uh, yeah, going to plan on getting up to Oshkosh Air Venture like middle of next week is the target. Uh, so I should be there about Wednesday, Thursday-ish. And uh be there until at least midweek uh, during Oshkosh, maybe toward the end of the week. And then after that, am I allowed to say this, Liz? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, Liz is going to do her annual um, trip up to the cottage uh, by the lakes uh, north of where she lives right now in Toronto. And uh, she's invited me to come by and visit her in, in her uh, cottage. And so nice. I'm going to be making a trip up, uh, I guess, north of... Yep. of uh, Oshkosh up toward uh, the Sault upper Saint peninsula Marie. of um, Michigan and then uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Canada and along Ontario and the lakes up there and then down toward um, wherever it is that you're going to be. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to it too. Spent a couple of days there before I have to get going back to heading back to Atlanta because uh, I have a trip uh, that I'll be flying on most likely on Monday the 8th. Right. So. Anyway, so it's going to be a, a big cool. trip. It's going to be fun. So, hey, if you're going to Oshkosh uh, this year, please make sure that you look for me because I'll be looking for you, and I plan on uh, having a good time. And we do plan on how, recording how a show. How would they meet up with you, Jeff? How would they, how would they, meet, up they, how would they meet up with me, Liz, at Osh? I don't know. Will, look will for you a, post something on Twitter? Look for a guy with uh, gray, white hair and a big white mustache. <laughs> Are you not taking the uh, flagpole on the You know, side? I, I thought about it. Um, I'm not sure. Sh- I, I might. I, it depends on how much room I have in the car. Right now, 
the car is going to be very, very packed with lots of stuff. So I, uh, I may or may not have the APG flag with me. Um, but, um, we can yeah. post something on Twitter. I'm gonna, yeah, I'll I'll be posting things on the social meds uh, and such to let you know, you know, where I am and where I'm going. Well, and people are gonna want their t-shirts. They're gonna people are gonna want their t-shirts. Uh, but I think um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, this thing called Camp Bacon, but I think I'm going to be in that area of of uh, Camp Scholler. And uh, right now, I don't know if that's really been defined yet. But uh, yeah, if you look for Camp Bacon, that's where I should be, but I'll be out there on the flight line and displays and that kind of thing. Neil's too. got it. What does Neil say? Look for the throng of groupies there. You'll find Jeff. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Don't do that. You'll never find me if you do that, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> there is no throng of groupies. Trust me. Um, anyway, no, there definitely is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so that is that. And uh, I'm on vacation until, as I said, the, probably the 8th of uh, August. Cover art from the last episode, uh, The Captain's Rap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't remember this, Nick. I must have had so much alcohol in me. I, I just didn't remember this concert that we were in. Uh, uh, nice. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you, you look a bit maxed out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you do too. At least I'm not wearing my hat backwards like you are. Well, yeah. <laughs> It's actually a memory of the Oshkosh that we were there together because that's where that picture was taken. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't remember that background, though. I must have been spaced out or something. Yeah, you usually are, Jeff. Uh, so. <laughs> no, that's, that's, uh, that was – that was uh, in, we were talking about a rapping. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, a rapper came uh, up on Some rap next, artist uh, on my aircraft, on aircraft um, and he liked wanted a recording. And, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> something to do with you and a rapper on a flight that you had and your voice for his recording, remember? Yeah, that's very true, yeah. And uh, that was me with my uh, Oshkosh uh, windsock on my hat. Exactly ah. right. Oh, and I thought I ought to explain what I had in my background. It was in memory of my first uh, time meeting uh, Nick, the other Nick, Nick Camacho, and uh, Bis- Betty's oh. Biscuit Bomber when they landed at Duxford oh, here okay. in the UK uh, for a uh, remembrance of the D-Day landings a few years ago. So uh, I took a number of, uh, fan- well, it was great photography uh situation and a number of pictures of uh, betsy's i keep calling it betty's but it's not it's betsy's biscuit bomber betsy's biscuit it's written bomber. right behind your yeah just uh, look over to your there, right turn yeah just you can read it <laughs> yeah, you're the right <laughs> so uh, when you were saying the background, I thought you were talking about the background that you and I were like that b- bright pink, purple. And I think, what does that oh, no, have that's to like, do? That's like going back to the womb, that background. Isn't yeah, it? that's like, what does that have to do with Nick Camacho? I'm, I'm not following not this me. at all. <laughs> no, nothing. No, I'm just talking pictures. Ah, gotcha. Well, that Spirit of the American West. Yeah. That airplane right there that's behind Rick, uh, Nick right now, whatever your name is, um, will be at Oshkosh this year. So that's going to be fun, too. And maybe, I don't know how this is going to work out, but it's a possibility that we might be doing our live show maybe somewhere near slash underneath the wing of that airplane. I don't know. Just depends on uh, how it goes. Um, And yes, I think that. our control room is now telling me to play this, which is the Coffee Fund. 
Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Hey, this is the Java Jive APG version done by uh, Jeff Smith, spelled with a G. Uh, this is the time of the show where Captain Nick and Dr. Stuff leave to use the toilet. Facilities. Yes, the facilities. Uh, looking at uh, my little view of the uh, video thumbnails here. Anyway, so they left me to tell you about the Coffee Fund, which is your way to support the show financially, if you desire to. And uh, if you do, we really do appreciate that. So um, the first method to participate is called the Coffee Fund Classic Method, which is just like a one-off type of thing, which is what Jason Payne did. Thank you, Jason. He gave us a nice, generous one-time donation via the Coffee Fund Classic Method, which is PayPal. And uh, we do appreciate that, Jason. Welcome aboard the Coffee Fund. Uh, The other way to participate is via Patreon. You can become a patron and no new patrons uh, since the last show. So check it out. Uh, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee and you'll learn about how you can become part of this great group of folks. You'll be glad you did and we will too. Captain, incoming message. All right, let's start off with this from Ivor. Uh, Dearest aviation podcasters, Nick, Jeff, Steph, maybe Rick, and our newest host, Nick, the Commando, (laughs) I write to you today to inquire about how you pass those pleasant hours, days, waiting for your flight. My last experience was a delayed flight, but was surprisingly enjoyable. Firstly, we had booked British Stairways, little joke for Jen there, using the upfront seat option, so got to use the BA Lounge that made the whole business much more enjoyable. We even got to meet one of BA's most treasured customers, Mr. Neville Bounds. Very pl- was he is he always there at the BA uh, He lives lounge? there, I think. He's oh. like he's like Hillel. He's always in the bathroom. <laughs> ah. it, it's yeah. it's kind of a it's like a they they can't get rid of him. That's the problem. <laughs> I mean, he's at home, but surprisingly, whenever you you know are yeah. in the lounge, he will also be there. I see. Okay, gotcha. I was say, Mr. Neville Bounds, very pleasant and a great surprise. But but what of other less fortunate souls? I'm thinking of scumbags like David Abbey or wasters like Andy Footlong. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know about, does he? So no. charitable. Yes. Mm, well, in the United Kingdom, listeners. most towns have place called Spoons. This is short for J.D. Weatherspoons, purportedly a public house that also allegedly serves food. The pricing of these establishments could be described as competitive or downright cheap. Now, I'm not going to comment on the clientele. Oh, sod, I will. It's the sort of place you can eat badly, get quite drunk, then watch a top-quality fight outside whilst waiting for your lift home. What more could you ask for? (laughs) Well, that sounds very entertaining. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Now to the interesting part. The Weatherspoons Group appears to have a monopoly on pub dining establishments in most UK airports. If you want a beer at 5.30 in the morning pre-flight, Spoons comes to your rescue. 
I'm not against this, but don't expect me to join in. Just give me a coffee and a seat by a window to watch the aircraft. Now that I've railed against UK in terminal catering, what terrible things do other countries throw up? Pun intended. There must be some terrible things out there. Your opinions are eagerly anticipated. Looking forward to your tales of woe. Love and kisses. Your kind servant, Ivor McDonald. Well, Ivor, I see the kind of man you are. Looking forward to our tales of woe. Hmm. So, you know, surprisingly, uh, I can comment on catering here in the U.S. I've been to quite a few uh, Mm -hmm. airports around. And um, for the most part, um, they've really stepped up their game in the past few years. You know, a lot of airports have had some pretty significant renovations and they've really done a lot to try and bring in local um, restaurants and local breweries and, and really, you know, they want to make sure that people are taken care of while they're waiting for their delayed flights or whatnot. Um, I will say though, here in the, uh, the queen city, uh, we, they still have the local establishment Bojangles where, uh, you can get some fried chicken and yeah, some good whatnot. fried chicken, some good fried chicken. Um, is. not sure if it's, it, it is good and it's, it's not good for always you. Open to. It's not good for you. I mean, if you're, you know, you know, one step away from a heart attack, I might suggest skipping it, but it's, it's oh, so I should probably skip it. Good and greasy, and it will <laughs> lodge in your for your left ventricle there, uh, just as well as anything. But it's delicious. Um, yeah, we really have some pretty good stuff. Um, I don't know. How? What do you What do you think, Jeff? I think that I agree with you that they've they stepped it up and tried to improve the quality of the uh, eating establishments and airports, but they've also stepped up pricing i mean i don't know if you've noticed um in the last month or so uh they they've gotten outrageously expensive they used to try to do like street pricing i think they called it you know like it wouldn't be too much different from what you would find if you went to the same establishment off airport but it seems to me like they threw that rule out the window and it's just getting crazy out there for the prices you're having to pay for everywhere right now um yeah even even the street pricing of things um, at yeah. actual street establishments, but uh, I, I was laughing a little bit because he said, "How do you pass those pleasant hours slash days waiting for your flight?" And I was thinking, "Well, I don't. I show up at the very last minute to the airport and like have to sprint to make it to my gate usually." But um, this last go around, when I went to the ATL for uh, the race on July fourth, um, I actually was at the airport early because I didn't have much else to do, and then my flight was delayed. What? So um, I could have used the lounge, but I noticed that Shake Shack was open, which is kind of a hit or miss thing for some reason. Can't quite figure out their hours. Probably has more to do with staffing than anything. And um, are you suggesting that my, you know, $20 Shake Shack burger and um, $14 beer from, from Wicked Weed might not be street pricing? That's what we're suggesting. I mean... You know, it was delicious though. It was quite good, and then I ran a personal best time the next day. So, I think the quality of the fueling was was excellent. Yeah, yeah. Although I will say though, it took forever to get my food. So, so the Shack, thing at, at a lot Charlotte of these Airport. airports, like uh, Atlanta, maybe I don't know to maybe a lesser extent at Charlotte, uh, they're having you know staffing issues, like huge staffing issues, like. Uh, I, I don't understand uh, any rhyme or reason for it because uh, there are times when I go there and uh, one of the places like you know, like where I like to go for like a breakfast wrap or something like that and not the not the rap music but uh, you know the the rap um, whatever you call that 
tortilla or whatever it is they wrap it up with. A burrito? Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're open and that's great. And then like the next day you're there and it's like 10 30, 11 o'clock in the morning and the, and the, the, whatever they call those bars or whatever the chain the gate gate thing over the top and lights are out and nobody's there so i you know they're still trying to work out staffing issues at the atlanta airport it's getting better no uh, it's the same it's the same here that's what i was kind of alluding to with shake shack i can't quite yeah. figure out when they're going to be open or not sometimes like five o'clock on a friday closed yeah you know and then what was it like a it was like eight o'clock saturday evening mm-hmm. open oh unsure yeah so um yeah, I don't know what else to say um, as far as um, what to do while you're waiting for your flights. Watch the planes. Yeah, watch the airplanes. I, I had I, a friend of mine ask me today if it was worth it for an hour and a half to buy a, a pass to one of the lounges. And I said, well, are you going to eat 50 to $60 worth of food or beverage in the next hour and a half? And they said, well, no. And I said, well, Not why? Worth it then. Why would you consider going yeah. in there? Um, I said, you know, it's probably a better idea to put in a podcast or something and um, just walk the airport uh, footprint, uh, get some steps or in. Or if somebody else is going to pay for yourself. it, then yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, After 25 years with my old company, they gave me a free pass to the uh, all the Virgin lounges. So uh, if I go uh, to Heathrow, which I don't think I've actually done since I retired, um <laughs> <laughs> Getting a lot of use out of that perk. Exactly. I guess I figure I we could just give these away like this, because this nobody's going to never coming to the well, airport. Yeah, You've seen enough of the airport. Give them a free pass. <laughs> I think that's exactly why they did it. Uh, yeah, and uh, in uh, of course when you're working in uh, other uh, airports, uh, there's plenty of food on the airplane, so you just beat feet for the airplane and and grab the galley food and cook something up. I mean, in the old days, they used to have um, pre-flight rations for the crew, and they, they had toasted cheese and ham sandwiches and that sort of thing. It was They were absolutely gorgeous. And the girls, as soon as they came on board, would slam 50 of those into the <laughs> oven, and that would serve the captain. Um, so, I wasn't sure yeah. if he was talking about the food or the girls for a second there. I'm still <laughs> unsure, but... I think he's it was the old. It was the old days, so yeah. things were a little it bit different. Could be both. I don't know. Yeah, no, yeah. it was. Uh, you know, all the food we we needed was on board, so we never ate at ate at the airport. Why would you spend money for something that you get free on board? Yeah, like when you get something to eat at the airport, and they see you're an airport employee, they go, "You don't want anything to drink, do you?" No, because it's on the airplane. <laughs> we got. <laughs> um, actually, most airports get, like give you a fifteen twenty percent discount, so mm. you can eat reasonably. Uh, inexpensively uh, in the airport if you Charlotte want to. Charlotte does, but, or they used yeah. to. Some airports cool. do. My home airport, the one you know does that not. I've been flying for more than 33 years, no. Oh, no, really? Well, you can no. check in Charlotte no the next time you're here. I'm pretty sure yeah, do. okay. That's I'll do that. So how long does this uh, this pass um, go for, uh, Nick, for the for the rest of your life? Well, I, I, I'm assuming so, but I haven't read the small print. Oh. <laughs> You'll find out next time you try to use it. I will. Oh, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll pitch like. up and show my pass, and I'll go, this run out that 10 was years for a year. ago. <laughs> I said I've only been retired for five. So uh, Does Jilly get in, too? Uh, yeah. On her own? Yes. I yeah. hope so. Cool. Yeah. Okay, number 13. All right, number 13. Not, I'll leave her outside. <laughs> I'll leave her outside. Wow. <laughs> Yikes. You wait here. I'm going to go in, food, beverage, 
Yeah. You know, uh, nice I'll bathrooms. Bring, I'll, I'll wrap something up in a handkerchief and pass it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, receives uh, the number 13 from Karen. Uh, first time feedback. She says, uh, here's some video feedback I recorded today, which we're going to play here in a second. I appreciate all you do to an entertain and educate listeners with all things aviation. I feel like you all are, you are all, no, you all are my friends after listening week after week. Jeff, can't wait to hear of your road tripping adventures. It's a fabulous way to see our great country. I'm originally from the upstate of South Carolina, so I can picture the places Dr. Stuff talks about each week. Mm-hmm. I get a chuckle every time I hear Liz laughing in the background. <laughs> yeah, me too. And Nick, the plain tales, excellent research and storytelling. Anytime I have a hard time getting to sleep, I just play a portion of a show where Rick is explaining a technical system on the Boeing. It works every time. <laughs> but seriously, I'm deeply grateful for all of the time and effort you put each put in to producing this podcast. Blue Skies and Tailwinds, Karen Larson, and uh, they, uh, she and her husband um, have a beautiful... Um, what is it called? A um, one of the it's a super cub. It's a, it's a cub, but but it's super no, it's cruiser. a cub, uh, but it's not a, an original one. It's like a carbon cub. Oh, I think. carbon cub. I think it's uh, it painted this beautiful yet, blue, and uh, which I think you'll see in the background of her video, Blue Cub Adventures. They are on Instagram, so follow them, Blue Cub Adventures, all one word. And without further ado, let's play. Her now, you know, I meant well. I think she mentions it in her video, so let's just go ahead and play it. Hello, APG crew, APG community. My name is Karen Larson, and I'm a first time caller, long time listener. Well, for a couple years anyway, back to episode 376 or so. You guys were my entertainment during COVID, and I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate all the hard work you guys put into the podcast. Uh, hours and hours of entertainment for myself and so many out there. So you said about uh, video feedback on the last episode, so I thought while I was out on my little excursion this morning, I'd kind of record a little feedback and send it your way. Hope that's all right. Again, my name is Karen, and uh, my husband and I both fly for uh, major airlines here in the U.S. I'm based in Denver on the 737. He's based in JFK on the Airbus, and yes, we have the Airbus Airbus versus Boeing uh, feud all the time, and I'm happy to report that the Cub always wins. So this is what we do for fun on our off days. We do the backcountry flying thing out west here. Right now I'm in Wyoming. This is called the Miracle Mile. It's a stretch of the North Platte River that has uh, world-class trout fishing, fly fishing. Uh, Folks from all over come to this area and fish. This airstrip was put in by the Recreational Aviation Foundation, and they take care of lots of strips all over the country for recreational pilots to use um, to fish and hunt and camp and uh, just have a good time with the great outdoors. So we spend our summers in Wyoming. We live in a travel trailer the majority of the year. Our home base is Cheyenne, Wyoming, uh, but we spend the summer mostly in Casper, Wyoming. And then in the shoulder seasons, we spend our time down in the Moab, Utah area. There's a lot of backcountry strips down there. 
uh, old uranium mine strips that the Utah Backcountry Pilots Association uh, caretakes for those strips and we help out do our part by uh, cleaning up some of those strips and replacing windsocks and those kinds of things. So usually we just throw the tent in the back of the airplane, go land on a strip somewhere, pitch the tent, have a campfire, do a little hike, do some exploring, enjoy the great outdoors. It's a great reprieve from the rat race of the airline world. Be down in a canyon somewhere completely off the grid. But that being said, I love flying, so I don't really mind what I'm flying just as long as I'm flying something. It's all great fun. My experience for, for the background of my flying is through Charter uh, 135 for 15 years. Flew King Airs and Hawkers and Citations out on the East Coast and then got on with Major Airline just about seven years ago. My husband and I met while we were flying Charter in corporate and uh, he was actually my co-pilot. <laughs> anyway, uh, he got on with his carrier about nine years ago and uh, we've been enjoying flying this little airplane for about three years now and um, just kind of trying to enjoy life since we're not guaranteed retirement, trying to make the best of it when we can. No kids, so allows us the freedom to be able to come and go as we want to. And having the tra travel trailer allows us the opportunity to kind of pick up and move and go wherever we want. So it's not for everybody, but it works for our life. And we're trying to just uh, get as many adventures in as we can. So anyway, just wanted to say hi. Hope to see a couple of you maybe at Oshkosh this year. It's always good to connect with friends um, each year at Oshkosh and uh, enjoy the airplanes. I'll maybe include a video of uh, me landing this morning uh, just to give you a little taste of what it's like to be in the flight deck of the mighty Carbon Cub. All right. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. So nice. That's flying right there. You hear that sound? That's the stall warning, I think. I hear that all the yep. time, the 717. Do you? No. <laughs> <laughs> no Just cool. kidding. Amazing, amazing uh, airplane. And wow, that's a nice setup in, in the uh, cockpit of the mighty Carbon Cub. Oh, fancy, fancy stuff going on there for a little backcountry uh, airplane. I love the idea of throwing a tent in the back of your aircraft and heading off to some, you know, specially laid out little uh, grass strip and camping for a few days. That sounds perfect, doesn't it? She's after mm -hmm. my heart. I mean, like, and they, I don't even think they live, from what I gathered on that is that they, they live the full-time RV lifestyle and they just got to move yeah. from place to place that, and have yeah. this wonderful airplane. And man, I can't wait. Karen, uh, she's in our uh, live audience. Thank you so much for, for doing the video oh, yeah, feedback. That's awesome. I love seeing the community members, uh, you know, not only hearing your voice, but also seeing you on video and that beautiful airplane. See you at look, Oshkosh. Look forward to seeing you up at Oshkosh in uh, like a week, week and a half or whatever it is. I love the uh, fact that you're Boeing and Airbus, and it must lead to some interesting discussions. I'm well, glad the Cub always wins, though, as it yeah, should. Yeah, that's super. GA flying for the win, yeah. always. Uh, it didn't look like you sit 
You don't sit side by side in that cub, do you? No, One no, cubs other? are tandem seating. Oh, are they? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's two seats. And Even uh, for someone like me? Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> There's actually a fair amount of room in there. You could fit in a cub. I think cool. so. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I, I gather from the video there, Karen, that uh, you have seniority over your husband. Uh, that's a good thing. It's good to be Absolutely. king. Absolutely. Yep. Right? Yep. Good to be Very the queen. Good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, you can fly video, from either right? seat, she says. And uh, so I guess full controls in mm-hmm. the front and back. That's very, very cool. What a great... I loved hearing the purr of that that engine and that carbon cub. And, uh, I, you know, Steph can vouch for this. Uh, after we were floating in the lake in South Carolina, when we watched the full oh, eclipse, yeah. there was a... Um, I think it was a carbon club, a cub uh, that was on floats that came and landed behind us. I don't uh, remember what lake. kind of aircraft it was, but there was, uh, yeah. It was a carbon cub, I'm pretty was sure. It a carbon cub? I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, it was a yellow, sure, it was but, a yellow yeah. cub. I don't think it was an original one. I think it was a carbon or a legend mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. on floats. And I started actually doing some research to figure out how much money that was going to cost me of my retirement uh, funds uh, to uh, yeah. to get but one of those things. you went with the RV instead. Someday yeah. when I'm back together, I think I could park one on my dock. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah, way to go. That would mm-hmm. be perfect, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, thank you again, Karen. And uh, I think now would be a good time to go to our Plain Tale episode for this week. And I'm just trying to find it right here. And here we go. It is entitled The Grade 2 Listed Centrifuge. Take it away, old pilot. The old pilot's Plain Tales. The Grade 2 Listed Centrifuge A recent BBC news program caught my eye when I realised it involved our great friends at the Farnborough Aviation Sciences Trust Museum. It reminded me of the group of sadistic so-called doctors who populated the Institute of Aviation Medicine and tortured generations of unsuspecting and innocent RAF aircrew in machines such as the one the article featured, a centrifuge. This aforementioned device, which resembles a vast witch's ducking stool crossed with an Iron Maiden, first operated in 1955 but was decommissioned as recently as 2019 and has now received Grade 2 protection. To be listed by Historic England in this manner gives the centrifuge the status of a protected structure, which means that someone can't easily chuck it on the scrap heap, and for the next two years at least it will be put on display as part of an exhibition attached to the Fast Museum. There were, of course, parallel organisations in other countries which made similar groundbreaking strides in the subject of aviation physiology, primarily in France, Germany and the United States. The history of British military aviation medicine is centred around the Institute, although that august body was a relatively late arrival and individual services, namely the Army and the Navy, had their own medical organisations that weren't specifically aimed at pilots. 
The physiological problems that pilots might encounter in their line of work had been appreciated very early on, as early as 1794, when the French formed an aeronautical company of observation balloons used in the Austrian conflict. The Americans also operated balloons during the Civil War and the British Army in the Boer War. In 1878, the British had formed a balloon school, which was the same year that Paul Burt wrote his seminal monograph, Pression Barometrique, which brought about a greater understanding of the effects of altitude, particularly that of the partial pressure of oxygen with reduced barometric pressure. Wilbur Wright had published an article in Flight magazine entitled Aviation and Common Sense, which contained some colourful descriptions of ailments suffered by aviators, such as hemorrhaging from lips and fingernails and the loosening of leg bones in their sockets. He also recommended the use of laxatives before flight to excite the circulatory organs and that bleeding would relieve feelings of congestion and lividity. As you can probably imagine, however, it was the First World War that brought about any serious progress in the developing field of aviation medicine. Previously, there had never been any specific concern about the fitness of those who took to the air, but as accident rates grew, it was suggested that a medical board vetting be performed on prospective aircrew. Today, it is well known that various conditions, both chronic and acute, may seem innocuous on the ground, but can cause great distress when cold, hypoxic and at a reduced atmospheric pressure. Since every failed aviator cost the Royal Flying Corps £2,000, the work of this board soon became highly regarded, and it moved from its rather incongruous setting of the Cecil Hotel in the Strand to a proper headquarters. The prevailing attitude towards the qualities needed by a pilot were well illustrated by a paper published in the renowned medical journal The Lancet of September 1918. It described an aviator's character as possessing resolution, initiative, presence of mind, a sense of humour and sound judgment. They should also be alert, cheerful, optimistic, happy-go-lucky, a good fellow, and frequently lacking in imagination, perhaps so they wouldn't dwell on the many ways that their chosen profession might kill them. Inevitably, good pilots were sportsmen, went to the theatre, danced, liked ragtime music, and indulged in riotous behaviour at least a couple of times a month. The RAF Quarterly advocated horse-riding, which developed an eye for the country, good communication and capable hands. When it came to selection, a more objective approach was obviously needed, since aircrew were now regularly flying in hostile conditions, altitudes of 20,000 feet without oxygen, temperatures of minus 20 degrees centigrade in open cockpits, where hypoxia and frostbite were constant companions. 
Pilots often flew without safety belts, parachutes or protective helmets. In addition, the psychological toll of operational flying was becoming self-evident. The dangers of hypoxia were already well documented as far back as 1875. Joseph Croc Spinelli, Theodore Civel and Gaston Tissandia had flown a balloon to 28,200 feet, but during the ascent they all fell unconscious. Tissandia came around during the descent to find both his colleagues had died. The problem of oxygen starvation amongst aircrew had been recognised particularly for photographic reconnaissance flights when long periods were spent at altitude to avoid the enemy guns. The erratic behaviour of observers who became confused and mishandled their cameras or photographed the wrong places were common. Pilots might fail to engage the enemy and wave cheerily at them instead. Landings after such flights were often poorly performed and the crews unsteady on their feet, complaining of long-lasting and severe headaches. Aircrew selection now included attention to a low heart rate, particularly when under stress, slow deep respiration and large lung capacity, all of which indicated good tolerance to low oxygen levels. The cure, of course, was to provide oxygen, but the equipment was crude. Mask designs were poor, uncomfortable and inefficient, and sometimes just consisted of a pipe to clamp between the teeth. They were constant flow systems that wasted much of the oxygen. It was the Germans who were probably the most advanced in providing on-demand oxygen equipment, but even their efficiency failed to overcome the problems of moist exhaled air, freezing valves and the dilution of the gas that inevitably occurred in the freezing blasts of air from an open cockpit that unsealed the mask. Staying warm was also a big problem, cured in some extent by the invention of the Sidcot suit by a then young naval aviator, Sidney Cotton, which I've talked about before. Helmets came about initially through the need to keep the head warm and were generally leather caps, but these left the face exposed and prone to frostbite. When advances in radio equipment required these caps to hold earphones and anchor oxygen masks, they became more efficiently designed and eventually in 1917 the RAF produced the first Mark I flying helmet. In the same year, Oliver Sutton designed a superior restraint system that could hold the crew in place even when inverted. Disorientation was recognised as a deadly threat to pilots, particularly when operating without visual references, which is why cavalry officers were often selected to be trained, as they usually had good balance and stability. Balance tests were performed, uh, not dissimilar to the sobriety test still used today, to assess innate spatial orientation. It was still common for crews to damage their ears through pressure changes and techniques to unblock the eustachian tube were not taught or practised. 
between the wars, advances in aircraft design led to new physiological problems being recognised. The effects of G on the body had been noted during the First World War during combat, but in the 20s and 30s, the great air races, with their tight turns being performed around pylons, ensured that the problem became more widely known. The consequences of increased G can be serious. Blood tends to pool in the lower limbs, decreasing blood pressure to the head. This is first noticed in the eyes, which, because of interocular pressure opposing blood flow, results in a dimming and then complete loss of vision. Consciousness is retained, but only for a short while, after which the brain shuts down, and if the G remains too high death will follow. It was the RAF's involvement in the Schneider air races that became the catalyst for training a team of pilots to resist the high-G environment. Muscle tensing was the simplest technique that improved resistance to around 4.5G, but the first suggested mechanical assistance was proposed to be an inflating belt that was filled by a scoop which opened into the slipstream under G via a bob weight. However, the high-speed flight team preferred to fly a wider turn, which reduced the G and retained performance. Other ideas surfaced, like flying in a prone position, breathing 100% oxygen and the wearing of tight belts, but interest in the problem waned. The onset of World War II enlivened the RAF's attitude to aviation medicine, particularly when it was realised how far behind Germany Britain was. A flying personnel research committee of experts was formed who assembled to tackle some of the most pressing issues, such as providing reliable oxygen to aircrew and protection against high G. Other areas of urgent interest were also identified, such as reducing cockpit noise, improving visual standards and the causes of fatigue. Labs were set up at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, Farnborough, which consisted of an unused corrugated iron lean-to shed, and their work started. This was the birthplace of what would become the Institute of Aviation Medicine. Within a matter of weeks, they were working on the effects of high altitude on the human body by borrowing and encouraging volunteers to clamber into the instrument department's noisy and cramped decompression chamber. In the months it took to assemble more permanent buildings and acquire their own equipment, they did important work establishing the mechanism that caused decompression sickness, evaluating oxygen systems and discovering factors that might be used to select those not prone to the bends, to give it the common name. Those who worked there did not remain secluded boffins, but were often found on operational missions, studying the problems of night vision, dazzle, fatigue, air sickness hypoxia and cold. They even flew with men suspected of low moral fibre to assess them and to bolster morale. They even flew with the Army Air Corps' 7th Bomber Group. They flew in India and the Far East. One particularly adventurous doctor, 
turned guinea pig to trial an RAF system of picking up agents from enemy territory. He was attached to a harness from which a cable was suspended in the air. A low-flying aircraft used a hook to snatch the cable and drag the subject instantaneously into the air. The acceleration and shock left the volunteer pale and shaken, but amazingly willing and eager to repeat the experience. It was in the early stages of the war that the Air Ministry encouraged research into the effects of acceleration on the body. After all, a pilot who could withstand more G than his enemy would have a distinct advantage in a dogfight. The Americans had a centrifuge, and it had been used by the father of American aviation medicine, Harold Armstrong, to conduct his classic study on the effects of prolonged acceleration on the human body. The Germans also had one, but it would be another ten years before money was made available for the British to build their own. The alternative was to use actual aircraft, which was arguably where the tests would finally end up anyway. Wartime fighters could pull between plus 10 to plus 12 and minus 5G and the motley collection of cast-off aircraft that the doctors at Farnborough could lay their hands on were not reliable enough to risk frequent experimentation at those levels. In the end, they used a gladiator fitted with a camera and accelerometer to measure the G being pulled. At plus 6G, a pilot weighed more than half a ton. Limb movements were near impossible. The face became haggard. The trunk shrank by two inches. Vision greyed and then blacked out, but other senses remained. Upon recovery, there was often spatial disorientation with a feeling of forward tumbling, extreme dizziness, nausea and profuse sweating. They worked at measuring their own G-thresholds, the value at which complete blackout occurred, and then experimented at what might affect it. This involved spiral dives from 20,000 feet, which allowed 30 to 40 seconds of constant high G. The subject's threshold improved with practice, but then stabilised, except when affected by something like a cold or other illness, or perhaps a hangover. It was surprising how detailed the observations were. Even without a centrifuge, it was established that the blackout occurred not because available light wasn't bright enough, or that the light-sensitive pigment in the eye lost sensitivity, but because of the pressure effects on the nerves leading from the eye to the vision centres of the brain. Much of this work was done by a young flying officer, Stuart, who, flown by experienced test pilots, was taken to a blackout over 200 times, which usually resulted in overwhelming feelings of lethargy, fatigue, impaired memory, headaches, sleep impairment, double vision and inability to concentrate. This inevitably resulted in depression and antisocial feelings. His tenacity over a two-year program resulted in him being awarded the Air Force Cross for his work. 
It wasn't until 1955 that the Institute acquired their own British-built man-carrying centrifuge at Farnborough, believed now to be the oldest example in the world of a centrifuge that has largely remained unmodified since it was installed. As was common with most centrifuges of its era, it could deliver a level of G appropriate for modern aircraft, but in its later life it couldn't replicate the rate at which this G could be applied. As such, after 65 years of vomit-inducing torture, it was stood down from duty. During its operational use, however, it made possible the investigations that led to the development of anti-G trousers and pressure breathing for G protection. Although not widely recognised, it was the United Kingdom who first invented pressure breathing for G protection with all the initial work carried out on the Farnborough centrifuge. Combined with anti-G trousers, PBG, is a system that equips the Typhoon fighter and enables the pilots to fly the aircraft to the limits of human endurance. The Farnborough centrifuge also enabled study of the adverse effects of G on the human body, gave high G training for UK fast jet aircrew, was used for the selection and training of candidates for space exploration, and furthered vital research into the physiological effects of G on the human body, often done in collaboration with the United States of America. Love it! Uh, Neil Lanwarm in our uh, live audience asks, have there been any long-term studies on the effects of high G exposure? And I answered uh, stupidity and incoherence. Nick, Captain Nick, is a great example of that uh, long-term high G exposure. They're all individual yeah. case studies, and you have to <laughs> no one to. I actually, as my, as my Air Force career progress, I uh, I discovered that uh, to avoid high G, you which the young bucks were very keen. They were very good at you know flying the old seven, eight G spirals downwards. I would go in the opposite direction. I'd go upwards. Yeah. And as your speed reduced, you now ended up in a high angle of attack fight rather than a high G fight, which was much more suited to a man of delicate flying skills and um, not such good um, G um, tolerance. Right. <laughs> you know, interestingly, I flew, I was an instructor on the T-37, the tweet in the uh, Air Force, mm. and it had the um, highest number of G loss of consciousness episodes of any airplane in the inventory. Yeah. And basically because it could, the, the G onset rate of that airplane was higher than anything uh, out there, oh, wow. including the F-16, F-15, because you, if you snatch that stick, I mean, you would go right into six G's or more. So that's your excuse. Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> my excuse. Yes, Liz. Um, but uh, how many, uh, <laughs> G locks. <laughs> I, I don't think yeah. I had any that I can recall, but think. I don't remember a he lot of the think, flying think. that I did. Yeah. Um, the uh, anyway, uh, we didn't have G suits on the uh, T thirty seven. When you went on to the T thirty eight, then you had the G suits, and and uh, the the rate of uh, G onset was uh, lower in that airplane. 
Um, and then you had the added effect of having the G suit. But the last time I wore a G suit was, I guess, 1983, uh, when I uh, graduated from uh, pilot training. But uh, anyway, you have a lot more experience in uh, G, uh, higher G level existence. Well, yeah, I used to be pretty good at it, but my... 9G for 40 seconds, wow. Yeah, that is is impressive. Uh, And with the right equipment, it shouldn't be too hard, but uh, obviously it requires a lot of physical effort to, uh, because muscle training still remains uh, a very large portion of your G mm-hmm. ability to uh, tolerate that amount of G. And that's a very physical thing to do uh, in the middle of a fight because, you know, you're, you're doing your best to um, fly the aircraft as accurately as can whilst bearing down on your all your muscles and your stomach. Uh, to try and keep yourself conscious, it's it's a difficult combination. Yeah, but, physiological um, speaking, uh, people like you, Nick, who are taller, uh, it's mm-hmm. harder for you to to maintain Absolutely. proper G, you know, levels. Of course, your- Douglas Sparta had great G tolerance because he didn't have any damn legs. Lucky mm. man. Um, <laughs> actually, and uh, the RAF uh, didn't ignore. Um, the problems during the Second World War because they actually put stirrups up so that if you, when you went into combat, you could take your feet off the rudder pedals and hook them much higher so that your uh, legs were level with your hips. Uh, and as such, uh, it made it easier for the blood to return from your limbs uh, compared with when they were down at the bottom of the cockpit. So that was an assistance, a help, but it wasn't really the same as wearing like you and I had, Jeff, uh, anti-G suits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nowadays, of course, they've got this um, pressure breathing uh, under G, which has the ability to reinflate those portions of the lung that w- mm. would be crushed by G. Because, uh, you know, all those little uh, alveoli, is that the right term? I think so, yeah. Steph? Alveoli. Alveoli, mm-hmm. uh, alveoli yeah. Uh, they press up against the, With the red sauce. Just one, really good. It's one of the reasons Ravioli, why yes. lying prone <laughs> is not as effective as you might think for a G, because your lungs are partially collapsed uh, under G when you're lying prone. Uh, if you reinflate them using pressure breathing, then you can regain some of that lost uh, oxygen transfer, which is fascinating. Um, and the, the aircraft with reclined seats, of course, that uh, that becomes quite important for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it, was, it was bloody hard work, to be truthful, as... <laughs> As uh, Ayal uh, will um, tell us if he if he was uh, able to, uh, and you needed it was you needed to be a fit young man. And by the time I was retiring, <laughs> I was very glad that the damn tornado didn't pull many G's very often. So, I can uh, tell you, I'm I know just from like roller coasters that I'm not great <laughs> at. Uh, okay, <laughs> mitigating the effects of bloke with geez. high blood pressure. Was that? It helps if you're a fat bloke with high <laughs> blood pressure. Not a it tall, does. skinny person whose blood tends yeah, to end up in yeah. their feet. Yeah. A short, exactly. plump person like me. <laughs> We're good at G, uh, G exposure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, I have a question. Uh, that bloke that you talked about, Stuart, uh, the one over 200 uh, 
yeah. blackouts. Uh, was that oh, is no. he any relation to Stuart and uh, Aslett, uh, the guy that suggested <laughs> that we have the Farnborough 2016 uh, big meetup? Well, you never know. You never know. And, and of I don't course, know. Uh, making more know, sense or, now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that really was. I mean, the guy was a very determined uh, doctor who went on to great things. He became an air vice marshal and uh, a very eminent uh, physiologist uh, in the field of uh, aviation medicine. But, uh, yeah, back then as a young flying officer, uh, I, I don't know what was in his head. but he, So there's, he there's your determined. case study on the long-term uh, effects yeah. of IG <laughs> yeah, exposure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. But those of us who have been through the hands of the uh, guys in the aeromedical branch know all their tricks. And whether it's sticking you in a black box and spinning you around in all directions or, um, you know, firing you uh, up in altitude in a hyperbaric chamber, you know, 25,000 to 45,000 in three seconds. Thank you very much. Uh, that was just no fun. No. <laughs> but fun hey, but it's not all negative. Uh, I.L. says at age 43, it became very hard. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, I.L., for yes. sharing that. Yes. Seems like um, a personal... Uh, Note. I'm yeah, not sure. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I mean, I Nick it. tried to tell us about a few personal things already today. Different. Yeah, but. yeah. I, just, I was going to mention my keto diet, show. but I I didn't get round to it. So I'm on a I'm on a no carb diet right now, and it's playing havoc with my digestive mm. system. Mm. My digestive system is not enjoying that at all, and I've been on it for like over two months now. Mm. Oh, you'd think by now I'd gotten used to it, but apparently you would have thought, wouldn't yeah. you? But, I don't know, perhaps it's not going to be something I can keep going in long term, but there you go. Mm. Mm. Well, off to bed with but, but discussing my elementary canal is probably not the ideal thing for right now. That's so I'm going to leave you and uh, head for bed. All right. Well, we uh, Bye, appreciate you being with us uh, for as long as you were, and we hope that you get some good rest and uh, continue to perform at those high levels that you've been performing uh, with the, uh, the bowls. So. With the bowels. Well, and the, the bowels, bowels, too. Yeah, not so much the bowels. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, sure. indeed. My, my bowels will be very happy, and so will my bowels. Good. <laughs> Win-win. All right. Take care, right. Nick. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Good night, Nick. All, of- All right. Uh, let's see. Let's look at uh, some more feedback, shall we? Uh, let's shall we do just it. start Wanna right up? Want to do this audio one? Uh, which one would that be? Number three. Number three. Would be number three. Yeah. It's ten, it's ten minutes, so we can have a little breaky here. And then, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This is from uh, Simon. Uh, RNP approach A320 feedback. Uh, hope He says, hi, all. Hope this feedback finds you well. Sorry that it's a bit long, and please feel free not to play it if it's a bit too much. Okay, we won't play it then. Uh, let's move on to number four. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we will play it. It's definitely worth it. Uh, thank you, Simon, for sending it in. So here we go. Without further ado, Simon, tell us about uh, RNT, RNP approaches. Hello, APG crew. This is Simon from the UK. It's been a couple of years since I left some feedback for you, and I'm sorry it's taken so long, but life has got in the way. Well, COVID and um, my airline collapsing has got in the way. Anyway, hopefully things are starting to get better. And the reason I wanted to um, get in touch and leave feedback today is to do with the news item on APG 524, which I'm just finishing listening to now. And it's relating to the GetJet Malta A320 at Paris on uh, May 23rd, 2022. Now, I'm not going to try and speculate what's gone on there. Obviously, 
I have no more information than anybody else. Uh, but it does raise perhaps a few interesting points relating to RMP approaches. It actually, most non-ILS approaches, but RMPs particularly are susceptible to this error that we've seen in this instant. So what I thought I'd do is just talk about things that I see um, in my current day job, which is doing training on the Embraer, um, teaching the initial ground school and conversion courses. So perhaps it's um, easiest first if we consider something like an ILS approach before we look at RNPs. And for those of us who are familiar with ILS approaches, um, we'll probably remember that they follow a ground-based radio aid, which then guides us to the runway, usually set to nominal three degrees, looking at the difference between um, two radio lobes to what we call the glide slope antenna. So no matter what you set the altimeter to, your ILS will guide you down that slope, no matter how hot, no matter how cold it is, no matter how high the pressure is, no matter how low the pressure is, we always have a reliable slope. Unfortunately, nearly every other type of approach that we follow doesn't have the benefit of that ground-based aid, and so we have to use barometric means to, to track down to the ground. And historically, that would be things like an NDB approach, a VOR approach, and every pilot has been trained, as um, you've covered in previous times, I know, uh, the importance of checking that we've got the correct pressure setting, the correct QNH. And that's obviously what in this instant has happened. There's been an incorrect QNH setting. But it's how does that happen and how does it impact on the system? Well, the how it happens, of course, is going to come out in the investigation. But I certainly can tell you um, that I see particular common traits when I've got crews in the um, simulator, when I've got them in the flat panel train and when we're talking in the class. And one thing that often happens is the setup of both sides of the flight deck should be independent. In fact, they must be independent, really. So the captain should set their own pressure setting. The first officer should set this pressure setting. And then both sides should come together and compare that they've got the correct pressure setting. That's the ideal. That's what should happen. It's not unknown to see things go a little bit wrong. And maybe what happens is the captain tries to be very helpful and gives a little bit of um, assistance to the first officer saying, oh, yeah, the QNH is and gives them the QNH. That's great if they give them the correct QNH. If they give them the wrong one, you've got a problem. Now, another place where we can get problems with QNH is if the crew are taking the voice ATIS rather than the digital ATIS, which comes through the printer. Through the printer, it's difficult to see how you could get the wrong ATIS uh, or copy the wrong ATIS down. The voice ATIS, though, it is easy sometimes to get the wrong information, and particularly places like Paris, where the ATIS is historically known for being very long and full of irrelevant information, and also read at incredibly high speed by a non-native um, speaker of English. So th there are problems there. There are potential areas where you can get the incorrect information. And unless both of you are listening to the ASIS, which you shouldn't really be doing, one of you should be listening and on the comms talking to ATC. One should be off box one listening to the ATIS. There is a, a hole in there. Okay, so why do RMP approaches present a particular problem with QNH? Well, it's because when we fly an RMP approach in what we call LNAV, VNAV, that brings us down to um, what in the old days we would have considered a non-precision approach minima, a 2D approach minima. So 
427 right for a category C aircraft like the A320 um, that minimum is 752 feet which equates to an, a height of 360 feet this is for 27 right over at Paris Charles de Gaulle the platform altitude is 5,000 feet and the aircraft descends from 5,000 feet all the way down to the minima. Hopefully visual reference is acquired and we continue and land. And all the way down from that um, first inset point, 5,000 feet, which is about 14 miles out, 14.3 uh, miles actually from the touchdown point. The designers of the approach provide the crew with check heights at each individual mileage or so and that's presented on the Jepson plate or the Lido plate, whatever you might be using. So, for example, at 12 miles, we'd say the altitude should be 4,270 feet. We get to 12 miles, we look at the altimeter, and it says 4,270 feet. It will always say that on a functional RMP approach. The reason is, that's what the system's doing. It's targeting all those altitudes that are on your plate and just flying to each one. And it doesn't know if those are correct or incorrect pressure settings that are set on the altimeter, unfortunately. That's the big downside of the system. So in the case of this crew, they'd set a pressure setting which was 10 hectopascals out, which equates to 270 feet, 300 feet for cash. What that means is the aircraft flew 300 feet low all the way down the approach, down to the minima. And had that aircraft, for, for whatever reason, continued below minima to a landing, that would put it about a mile short of the threshold. Be a big problem. So how do we mitigate this? Well, the first thing is, of course, we check that we've set the correct QNH. It's worth asking the controller to confirm the QNH once you're established on the inbound course. The second thing you can do is you can look at the radio altimeter and confirm that that's reading sensibly. Obviously, unless the ground is completely flat around you, there, there, there will be slight differences. But it can highlight gross errors. A 300-foot difference may well show up and be in your scan, but you've got to look at it and check that it's reasonable. So always watch out for those ones, I think. The other thing that I often come across with crews in training, um, which surprises them, is they think that the EGPWS system is going to keep them safe. It's going to tell them they're about to crash into the ground. And you'd like to think so. But the sad news is that it takes one heck of a big altimeter problem for that system to trigger. The reason is, as we get towards the runway, there's a thing called the terrain clearance floor. And this is um, a sort of protection for EGPWS to stop getting erroneous warnings. Obviously, we want to land the aircraft. So it knows you're approaching a runway. And as you get lower, it inhibits the warnings. And that terrain clearance floor means that as this crew would have been getting lower and lower, it wouldn't have been saying too low terrain, too low terrain, or any of those warnings that people think that might come up. Instead, it thinks, well, these guys are trying to land. So I don't need to tell them about that. The, the warnings are inhibited. There are some things that would trigger off, though. Uh, 1,550, 40, 30, 20, the radout callouts would all be going off. And again, if you were hearing those with a mile to run, that should be one heck of a big red flag. So what are the takeaway points from this? Well, I think, first of all, check, check and check again that you've got the correct Q&H with any of these approaches. It doesn't matter if it's an RMP approach, 
whether it's an NDB approach, a VOR approach. Nowadays, we're using virtual glide paths on airplanes rather than driving it down manually. So the aircraft is going to target all the altitudes on the plate, which leads us to another point. Those altitude checks that we religiously read from plates and feel that we've, you know, big gold star, we've done a great job, we've checked the altitude. It's arguable that they're completely pointless on these sorts of approaches. All we're doing is checking the system is working as designed, but we're not really checking where the airplane is anymore. Um, so that's one to just have in the memory bank. And finally, the other thing to bear in mind is that this isn't an isolated incident. Many airlines have, have had similar incidents now with these sort of approaches with altimeters being set incorrectly. So if you're a casual observer, if you're just interested in this stuff, then hopefully you can see how by setting the pressure setting wrong, the aircraft can be lower than you really think it is, or higher indeed. And if you're flying these, I can only urge you just to be very, very careful with them. The technology is fantastic. And if you understand how to use it and you treat it very cautiously, it's brilliant. That's all for me and hope you're all keeping well and I will talk to you again at some point. I hope so, Simon. Um, I'm thinking that Simon, when listening to our discussion at the beginning of the show, our first news item was probably yelling and screaming uh, at his podcast playing device saying, I this is what I talked about in my feedback. This incident, I completely forgot. We've had this feedback uh, from Simon uh, for at least a couple of shows, right, Liz? Yeah, we, definitely. Uh, for a yeah. while. And I had for completely forgotten about it until I played this. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, he's talking about that incident that we covered at the very beginning. And I'm thinking, no wonder I knew so much and what to say because I had listened to Simon's uh, audio feedback, and uh, that must have still been in my head somewhere. So thank you so much, Simon, for kind of recapping and really saying it better than we did. <laughs> uh, so you, you know, what you should do is you should just go back to the beginning. And just put that in the beginning. And just put that in there. Yep. Maybe I'll do that just in the edit. Just fix it in post. <laughs> yeah. Or say, uh, we tried to play this later on, but it really belongs a lot better right here. So right. take it away, Simon. Simon, uh, and also I'm, I'm thinking, Liz and I were discussing the fact that you have such a great voice and also that the quality of your recording uh, sounds to me like you have experience in radio or some kind of voiceover work because uh, it just sounded really, really top-notch. So thank you for, um, for, the, for the sound and also the explanation of all the things that we attempted to cover, um, not quite as... Uh, as well eloquently eloquently as you did um, there and uh, uh, we uh, honestly hope that you'll take the time to send in feedback in the future so we can sound smart again when we cover whatever it is you're talking about at the beginning <laughs> of the show no uh, we'll uh, try to play it um, in a more timely manner uh, but yeah I, as I said I completely forgot that he his audio feedback dealt with this particular um, incident uh, which, by the way, it's kind of odd that it wasn't covered uh, anywhere else, at least uh, that we could see, like in the Aviation Herald or anything else. But I'm glad that uh, somebody, uh, you know, was paying attention to it. Thank you, Simon. So we got about 15 minutes left, Jeff. Okay. Um, 
unless you want to cut things short or whatever you want to do. Well, about 15 minutes left. What do you think, uh, Steph? Do you want to do uh, some more? What do, you know what we could do? So do you, one, or, one or two more? Or are there a couple yeah. um, There's a short, the that we number, should wrap up with? Number nine Liz? is a short one. Okay, it's number short nine, audio. she said, yeah. is a nice short, uh, audio. short audio. So, yeah. Oh, this might be a good one. Yeah, okay. Uh, this is from... Okay. Uh, P Pacific, Northwest. Pacific, Northwest Pacific Northwest Hemp. hemp. Thank yeah. you. When I see a three-letter identifier, I'm always thinking it has something to do with airport. an airport. But uh, that's a geographical region of the United States. Here we go. Hello, APG crew. Pacific Northwest Hemp with a quick question. Do you have... Sp- and even he even says it in his audio feedback. Specific short field takeoff techniques? Or, or do you use the same SOP for any runway length that satisfies the takeoff performance calculation? As a piston plane pilot, we have a fairly standard short field technique across types that mainly allows for making sure the engine, or engines, I guess, uh, are making full power before beginning the roll. But it occurred to me that airlines may be operated differently. Uh, that's all I have for today. So thanks for your time. Well, thank you, Pacific Northwest uh, Hemp. I know that PN- PNW stands for Pacific Northwest. Um that's a good question. Now, Steph, in uh, your line of flying, you uh, know a lot about short field takeoffs. In fact, probably most of the takeoffs you uh, experience mean, are short field takeoffs. They're short field, but more as a function of the um, available power that we have, power mm-hmm. to weight ratio in our, our aircraft that we primarily fly. Um, we've got 5,000 feet of runway, so they don't have to be particularly short field mm. for the type of aircraft that we're flying but um yeah no typically they're 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 fairly short field and we want to be um up and climbing away from the airport environment pretty quickly but um yeah unless there's something odd going on or if we're in a different different field from our own um our takeoffs are pretty standard it's um applying full power as we're rolling out onto the runway um from the the taxiway flaps um 20 in our 208 and um yeah Rotating at about seventy knots, but we, we're not doing any. We're not doing specific short field or soft field techniques most of the time. But you certainly can. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. His question was really about for you know from the airline perspective. If you're at a uh, say you're at you know like I don't know. I'm thinking Chicago Midway is some place mm-hmm. that you fly to that has yeah. relatively short runways in comparison to say Atlanta or Charlotte. Right. Well, is there anything we, different that you are? Takeoffs are the same regardless of whether we're taking off on a short runway or a very long runway. Uh, everything is predicated on the weight of the airplane, the you know the, the weather, meteorological conditions, uh, the power that you're going to get out of your engines, etc. And everything is fed into a system. And in our case, uh, we don't make the calculations um, directly in the airplane. This information is sent to a central department at ACME, uh, load planning, and they put all the numbers in and their sophisticated computers, and they uh, send back to us via ACARS, uh, the digital system uh, for communications, uh, uh, weight data record, and it's um, all predicated on you know the number of passengers, the fuel load, as I said before, the temperature, the winds, all that stuff, and then we print it out, and uh, the WDR is our Bible when it comes to setting the parameters uh, for our um, uh, V1 speeds, rotate speeds, V2 speeds, etc., and uh, and engine power settings. 
in in most cases out of midway if it's like really hot um, and we're heavy uh, we would uh, probably be operating the engines close to what we call normal takeoff power um, and if uh, the conditions were you know if we were a little bit lighter or the temperature is a little bit lower then we might be able to even at a short field length uh, be able to take off at a assume temperature uh, setting for the engine power in a, a reduced power takeoff mm-hmm. um, but as far as the way we fly the airplane or we rotate the airplane or whatever it's just you the don't same. have a different um, and I guess this would actually really be more for so you're thinking about short feel a lot of times these are with reference to especially in the GA world with um, uh, clearing obstacles you know the 50 foot uh, obstacle mm-hmm. is, is a lot of times what you're looking at so you're thinking yep. about the difference between your best rate of climb versus your best angle of climb so for short field you want your best angle which is VX and then best rate would be VY so typically we're flying at VY all the way up to our jump altitude because we want to get there as efficiently as possible and quickly as possible but is that something that ever changes for you? It's all based on based on speeds. The only thing that changes for us in the airline world, and at least my experience in it, is that there is a, a departure procedure that we'll use on certain airports. And right off the top of my head, the two that I recall that we use a different uh, takeoff um, procedure, actually initial climb procedure, is out of uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and out of San Antonio, Texas. And it is basically uh, normally what we do is when we hit 1,000 feet, the uh, the power of the engines uh, reduce, reduce to climb mm-hmm. power setting, and then we lower the nose a little bit. And if you're a passenger, you'll notice this at about 1,000 feet, the engine power comes back, the nose of the airplane comes down a bit, and then you start hearing the noises of the uh, of the flaps retracting and the slaps slats retracting or accelerating. And then when we get to the uh, climb speed, then we, well, actually, in most cases, 250 knots, uh, which is the maximum speed below 10,000 feet. And then we start bringing the um, nose back up and continue in the, with the climb power setting. There is a procedure that uh, we continue at, at uh, I think it's 1,500 feet. I always have to review it because we do it so very seldomly. Um, you uh, you set you allow the the engines come back to um, climb power setting at fifteen hundred feet, but you keep the nose up and you continue to climb out at a lower airspeed until you get up to three thousand feet, and then at that point you lower the nose and then you start retracting the flaps and the slats, and then you proceed on as normal. So it's a, a more to do with uh, obstacles and um, noise abatement um, at certain locations than it does with the actual runway. Um, scenario as far as you know clearing obstacles at 50 feet or whatever at the end of the runway that's that's uh, as I said we don't change that that always stays the same it's just that during the cleanup climb and cleanup procedure changes a little bit I think it's called oh thank you I hollow boxes NADP1 uh, we normally use NADP2 but uh, what I've described there is uh, or I tried to anyway it was NADP1 procedures and I said usually we'll notice that we're reviewing the uh, airport um, notes for the airport that we're operating into and out of. Uh, you know, sometimes you may not, like for Providence, for instance, I haven't been in there for probably over a year, maybe longer. Uh, San Antonio, it's been several years. And then I, who knows, I might end up having a trip that goes to Providence or San Antonio. So you, we look at these air, airport notes and it has information about 
arrivals and certain procedures, departures, departure procedures, gate, ramp procedures, that kind of thing. It gives us that current information. And that's where you'd see that this airport requires NADP-1 uh, departure procedures. And uh, so that's and then we go, oh, okay, I guess I need to review that. Because as I said, we very seldom use that NADP-1 procedure. So mm. that's, that's the only difference that I can see. Uh, well, yeah, we don't do anything with the short field thing. That just reminds me when I was uh, taking my commercial single engine check ride at um, the uh, executive airport in Jackson, Mississippi. I forgot the name of it now. But uh, uh, the instructor, I, I mean, my instructor, a fellow Air Force instructor, uh, told me how to do a short field takeoff and a soft field takeoff. And I'd never heard of a combination of the two. And Sure. Yep. Yeah, I, 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 you say, yeah, we yeah, do those, sure. We do those yeah. things all the time. Well, actually. I'm the same guy that was like, when we were flying down, I was looking at the uh, OBS and I go, what is that? And he, and, and my friend said, oh, this is how this works. And I went, oh, okay. So glad I asked him because when I went up on my check ride, <laughs> the guy says, it was okay, well, how would you go if you, if I told you to proceed directly to the Jackson VOR, how would you do that? And then I could see it out my window. I said, well, I just, it's right there. So I'd turn and he goes, no, using instruments. I went, oh. Thing, and I'm thinking to myself, thank goodness I asked my friend what that instrument was. So I explained exactly how my friend told me to use it. And he goes, okay. But when we came back into the pattern, he goes, okay, let's do a combination soft field, short field landing. I went, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, I have no idea how to do <laughs> what he just asked me to do. But apparently whatever it is I did, it was good enough because I just made the one yeah, landing. And of, he goes, okay, that's good. Lots of flaps. <laughs> Make sure you land at the first available point and uh, hold that nose gear up so that you don't sink into the Sure, I don't know what I did. soft muck I probably didn't in. do that. Probably didn't do that at all. Uh, but Short of prob- field, soft landing. That's very nice. Eye hall boxes. That's, that's what that one flight tried to do. On the wrong glide slope. Short of field, soft landing. Yeah, I don't want to with the, wrong, with the wrong Q&H setting. <laughs> Not good. I think the guy probably understood that I was just getting this so I could take my mom and dad up in an airplane um, out in California. Mm-hmm. And knew that I wasn't going to be doing this for a full-time gig. So he was a little bit more lenient with me, I think. Um, I'm sure your flying skills were excellent. Ah, Demonstrated thanks. all the appropriate uh, Apparently, requirements. Uh, as long as he got his money for the for the examination, I think he was happy. <laughs> Cash, anyway. Yeah. We're ready to wrap it up. Is that going to be it, Liz? You think? Uh, Okay. Unfortunately, yeah. But all right, let's do it then. Let's uh, wrap this thing up. And uh, as always, we point you uh, toward our uh, website, airlinepilotguy.com, where you'll find all kinds of good information there about the crew and the uh, community and the community calendar, merchandise, the library, more information about uh, the plane tail episodes or installments. Uh, what am I forgetting? Contact us and uh, you can merch. Mer- yeah, I got the merchandise, the store. There's, there's um, everything there. If God, you are wondering about, if you have any question about this podcast, it's on the website. It's the pretty answers. much like uh, AOL, uh, you know, back in the days before uh, the internet. It's just like America Online. No, it's not really anything <laughs> like it at all. Um, but I you just get that awesome dial-up noise too when you go to the yeah, website. Just you do. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what you're going to get when you go to the AirlinePilotGuy.com website. And we're also on the social meds. Seth is going to tell you all we about it. We sure are. And we'll probably talk about Facebook first. Yes. Facebook.com slash AirlinePilotGuy. 
nailed it um yeah join us there you can also find us on twitter we're at apg crew and our individual twitter handle handles are pinned to the top of that page um if instagram is more your thing apg crew and if you really want the deep dive the behind the scenes the everything and anything to do with apg i suggest uh slack and is whole hell did find his just, way uh, to the turned up APG the pater there and they uh don't ask me why I have a microphone in it. Hey, Halal, you want to tell us about Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. Okay, that's all right. Come on over. Come on over. Okay, I'm going to move out of the way. He's going to tell you all about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right. Well, thank you, Hillel, for uh, giving all that information. Yeah. I'm not sure what that means, but no. maybe get him some talcum powder. Yeah, okay. Sounds like an urgent need. I'll, uh, the talcum powder is. I'll, I'll be. I'll be right with you after we finish the show. Okay. Um, looks like Skype just went away for some reason. Oh. Interesting. Oh, I know why. I turned. I turned ah, it off because I'm coming you over didn't here. Need it anymore. Okay. I just no. heard the little Skype sound in my head. Uh, all right. Uh, so let's. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm distracted so easily. Uh, let's uh, put out a big thank you for Liz Piper, our producer, director. You're welcome. Uh, so busy As behind always. the scenes with everything. Thank you, Liz, for uh, all of your help. And uh, we do appreciate that. And looking forward to uh, seeing you. Well, I, next week, I'm thinking, I don't know where we're going to be doing, or I'm going to be doing the show next week. So just uh, follow us on the social meds and you'll find out. And uh, Hopefully I'll see many of you listening to the show up at Oshkosh. And until then, wishing you blue skies, no, clear skies, unlimited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Sorry about what, that. What a mess. Smooth. That was so smooth. <laughs> yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can
can land this old plane, I can land it just fine. Airline, not a guy, I fly. Over. 